Good morning, everyone. So glad you're with us on CNN this morning. Victor Blackwell by my side again. Good morning. Hump day. Hump day. Hump Good morning. Day yes. Halfway through. There, yes. Uh, we have a lot of developments. It's a lot going on overnight. Overnight. Let's start with five things to know this Wednesday, August 9th. Voters in Ohio showed up in a big way, overwhelmingly rejecting issue one, an effort that would have made it harder to amend the state's constitution. It's a major win for abortion rights supporters ahead of a November vote to ensure access to abortion. For the first time this morning, we are seeing a secret memo from an unindicted co-conspirator in the federal January 6th case against Donald Trump. The New York Times got a hold of the letter, which shows the evolution of the fake elector scheme. Also new this morning, Hawaii is under a state of emergency right now as large wildfires rage. They're fueled by winds from Hurricane Dora. The Coast Guard is rescuing people who have been jumping into the ocean to escape the smoke and fire. Overnight, the police chief of Montgomery, Alabama, tells CNN it is highly likely that more people will be charged in that chaotic caught-on-camera fight, really brawl on a riverfront dock. And since Poppy did not buy those tickets... I didn't! Someone else is a billionaire this morning. <laughs> One ticket purchased in Florida matched all six winning numbers and the Mega uh, Ball, uh, well, five plus the Mega Ball. <laughs> it was the biggest jackpot in the game's history. CNN This Morning starts right now. So I tried. What do you mean you I tried? I went to two stores <laughs> in Brooklyn. I dragged my kids. Is How that bad? How hard is it? Is that they bad? They put you $2 on the counter. <laughs> they didn't and sell said, them. And said, give me a ticket. Okay, they didn't sell them. Well, right. what? I don't understand why these well, you stores don't all sell them. I tried. Did you? No. But it's, it's better teasing you about it. But that's good, because now you have to come to work. And here I'm I am. very happy. Um, but what a development overnight. We've been talking a lot about Ohio yesterday sure. and, what, and direct democracy and what it was going to mean in the state. Well, look what it meant in huge numbers this morning. Ohio voters have spoken. Abortion rights advocates have won a critical victory in a high-stakes special election. 57% of voters rejected a measure that was backed by state Republicans. It would have made it harder for voters to change Ohio's constitution and protect the women's access to abortion when the issue goes on the ballot this November. So under the failed measure, a 60% supermajority would have been required instead of a simple majority. Voters said no to that. Now, this comes after lawmakers in Ohio and other Republican-controlled states passed sweeping abortion bans. Critics of the Ohio measure called it a GOP power grab. The voter turnout, it was massive, unprecedented for an August election in an off year, over one million more Ohioans voted than in last year's primary. CNN's chief national affairs correspondent Jeff Zeleny is live in Columbus. Uh, Jeff, Ohio voters, they came out. They sent a strong message yesterday. Good morning, Victor and Poppy. They absolutely did. From urban areas to suburban areas, voters across the spectrum, uh, Republicans joining uh, Democrats and certainly critical independents in rejecting that amendment that would have made it more difficult to pass a constitutional amendment. Uh, of course, first among those was the abortion measure that is on the ballot in November. But as we talked to voters, it was about so much more than that. Some called it a power grab. Others simply uh, even those who don't necessarily support abortion rights thought that state Republican leaders were trying to pull a fast one, if you will, by scheduling that August election. But at a victory party last night, supporters talked about it was a victory for the people of Ohio and democracy. 
Voters saw issue one for what it was, a deceptive power grab designed to silence our voices and diminish our voting power. We defeated issue one because an enormous coalition that spans ideological divides came together to defend democracy. And it also would have it also would have made it much more difficult to put um, amendments to the Constitution, those citizen petitions on the ballot in the future. It would have required uh, signatures from all 88 counties across the state of Ohio. So effectively, one county could block the entire state. So, yes, abortion was at the center of this, the driving force of this. But it was about so much more. And voters had their say yesterday and answered very loudly. Yeah, they did. They spent a whole lot of money, too, right? Over $32 million when you add up both sides on this. Just to be clear, Jeff, this uh, abortion uh, protection, essentially, uh, will still be on the ballot in, in November, right? It absolutely will be on the ballot. So effectively, a new campaign starts uh, today that has been underway for several months. And this is because um, hundreds of thousands of Ohioans signed petitions to put this on the ballot. Um, the petitions were delivered in July and they were uh, certified by the state uh, secretary of state. So this election in November will be one of the biggest tests a year after, of course, Roe versus Wade was overturned and the Supreme Court sent the issue back to the states. Ohio is just the latest example of a state that will decide that. Now, we do know, of course, Ohio in 2019 passed a law that banned abortion effectively after six weeks. That has been held up in the courts. That is not in effect. But if this amendment passes in November, that will be overturned. But the bigger picture of this is we are seeing a pattern from state after state after state of these citizens when they vote vote, they are supportive of abortion rights. Our national poll yesterday, of course, showed that 64 percent of Americans disagree with that Supreme Court decision. So that was uh, front and center yesterday here in Ohio. Yeah, I was thinking of, Victor. about that poll when I woke up to these headlines this morning. Jeff Zelny, really appreciate the reporting there in Columbus. Thanks. New this morning, we're getting our first look at a key piece of evidence in the investigation into former President Donald Trump and the efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. The New York Times has obtained a memo written by unindicted co-conspirator number five, attorney Kenneth Chaseborough. Uh, the fraudulent elector memo was the first mentioned, was first mentioned, I should say, in the indictment that came down last week. But we have not seen it until now. And while we knew the contours of the fake elector scheme, this memo shows how it evolved and how it was discussed behind the scenes. It's fascinating. I would suggest reading through the whole thing, but here are some highlights, a few key paragraphs. Quote, even if, in the end, the Supreme Court would likely end up ruling that the power to count the votes does not lie with the president of the Senate, meaning Mike Pence, but instead lies with Congress, letting matters play out this way would guarantee the public attention would be riveted on the evidence of electoral abuses by the Democrats and would also buy the Trump campaign more time to win litigation that would deprive Biden of electoral votes and or add to Trump's column. I recognize that what I suggest, he writes, is bold and a controversial strategy and that there are many reasons why it might not end up being executed on January 6th. But as long as it is one possible option to preserve it as a possibility, it is important that the Trump-Pence electors cast their electoral votes on December 14th. Close quote. CNN crime and justice reporter Galen Polhance is with us with more. We knew there was a memo. Now we now we can read the memo. What does it mean for Jack Smith and the prosecution? 
Yeah, actually a series of memos that the prosecutors in this case, the special counsel's office, have gotten and assembled to essentially show how there was initially a plan that was put in place by this co-conspirator, Kenneth Cheeseborough, who is not charged with any crime at this time, where he initially was proposing a plan to Donald Trump and others about preserving their rights, just making sure that if something was going to fall through with the outcome of the election, that he would be in a position to win. But that was a very, very slim chance, even in the very close days after the election. And by December 6th, that is where this memo comes into play. So this is an additional memo where Cheesebro is sort of expanding upon his ideas and where prosecutors are saying this is where it takes the turn from being something that was just about preserving Donald Trump's ability to potentially win the election if he needed to, to finding a way to create enough smoke around the election that he could seize it using all of the different parts here, using the fake electors, having Mike Pence count the votes, and then what prosecutors say was putting into the court system lawsuits at that time that they knew weren't going to win that could help them use the fake electors to essentially cause confusion and make the public start to think, okay, maybe uh, these fake electors are the ones. And so this memo, we know about it because it is cited in the indictment. It's cited along with a couple other legal memos that Cheeseboro was writing, but now the New York Times has gotten it itself. And those words of his are quite interesting that he's calling it a bold, controversial strategy. And he is talking about how this is very useful for public attention to buy the campaign time. Yeah. yeah. And Caitlin, just as as riveting as what's in these six pages of this memo, it's important to talk about what happened after the memo was written, who got it immediately, and then what rolled out after that. It's really important to remember that because it's not just about what Ken Cheesebro is doing here. He's not the person charged in this case. It's Donald Trump. And there's a number of people, Trump himself and others, who starting on December 6th are so sold on this idea of using fake electors. And when you look at the indictment that the prosecutors have filed against Donald Trump, the evidence that they're compiling that we're very likely to hear at trial, they are they are reflecting apprehension in Donald Trump's campaign and even even among these fake electors themselves in these six battleground states, thinking, can we do this? And people are writing emails saying this is wild or creative. One person uses the term fake electors in an email uh, and that others are writing about this being a crazy play that Cheesebro has proposed. But Donald Trump and others, they're talking about it and they're saying, to the RNC, we want to get this to happen. We want to make sure those electors show up. And then ultimately, they do assemble essentially in a way that mimics what the real electors for Joe Biden in the states he had won were doing so that it would be easier for them to say, look, we're trying the same things. And then the lawsuits are the other piece on top of this, which some of these states didn't even have lawsuits to try and overturn the election results. Those only came into play later. All right. Caitlin Polance uh, with some important reporting. Stick around. We'll bring you back in just a moment. Thank you for that. This morning, CNN has also learned that Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis will likely be in front of an Atlanta-area grand jury next week presenting her case against Donald Trump. Sources say she may seek several indictments as she eyes a possible racketeering case that could cast Trump and his allies as operating a criminal enterprise to upend Georgia's 2020 election results. 
CNN Sarah Murray joins us now live from Washington, D.C. So, Sarah, uh, we're learning that uh, Willis has been lining up witnesses. Uh, bring us up to speed on what we ex should expect over the next several days and into next week. Yeah, that's right. I mean, she's been lining up witnesses, and we've talked about these before. These are people that the special grand jury who collected evidence for months on the Trump case has already heard from. So prosecutors, Funny Willis, they already know what these witnesses are going to say. They're not fishing around for new evidence, but what they are looking to do is to line up people who can help craft a narrative around parts of her case when she does go before the grand jury, which, again, we expect to be next week to present her case potentially against former President Donald Trump and a number of his allies, and when she does seek indictments. Now, obviously, we've seen the security perimeter around the court being strengthened. We've known this is coming, but this is a clearer time frame for when she is likely to go and she is likely to seek this indictment in what has really been a sprawling investigation. I mean, this has been going on for two and a half years. She's looked at everything from the call between Donald Trump and former Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, where Trump asked Raffensperger to find the votes to the fake elector scheme, to these pretty bonkers presentations that Rudy Giuliani and other Trump allies made before Georgia state lawmakers. So frankly, she has a lot to work with when it comes to the case that she is likely to present before this grand jury, guys. We heard former President Trump talk about all of this at that rally in New Hampshire last night. His response was unsurprising. <laughs> it was unsurprising. Look, he is expecting to be indicted for a fourth time. His team is expecting he's going to be indicted for a fourth time. That does not mean he's particularly happy about it. And he has had some very pointed language for this black Democratic district attorney. Take a listen to what he said yesterday. I probably have another one. They say there's a young woman, uh, a young racist in Atlanta, say racist. And this is a person that wants to indict me. She's got a lot of problems, but she wants to indict me to try and run for some other office. Now, obviously, the district attorney knows this is the kind of stuff the former president says about her. She's faced a number of threats, and her view is kind of to just shake off as much of this as possible, as, as long as what the former president is saying doesn't rise to the level of a threat against her, her staff, her family, guys. Sarah Murray for us in Washington. Thank you. Thanks. The judge who's been assigned to preside over former President Trump's election fraud case in Washington, D.C., is ordering Trump's attorneys and federal prosecutors to appear in court on Friday, this Friday. Prosecutors say they're ready to go. Trump's lawyers asking for a postponement until early next week. Joining us now on all of these legal headlines, uh, former federal prosecutor, CNN legal analyst Jennifer Rogers is, is with us. I, I want to start on this memo because it's important for so many reasons. Also, the January 6th committee did not have this, okay? So to read it in full is striking. Is this a criminal scheme laid out on paper? It is. It is. I mean, it really is the turning point from legitimate questions, legitimate challenges in court of election results, asking for recounts and so on, to saying, all right, let's take a pivot here. You know, there, there's no legal analysis in here in the memo that says, here's how we win. Here's how we can legitimately challenge. It just says, let's try something different, something controversial it's not likely to succeed. He says he's not even recommending it, Cheeseboro. He just says this is something that can buy us time. So then where is it illegal? Well, what he, a few things kind of give us that clue. I mean, obviously, you're talking about evidence from witnesses and a whole bunch of other things other than the memo. But a, a few things jumped out to me. You know, one is they're talking about doing it uh, contrary to the laws, right? Like doing it in private. 
doing it without the governor's knowledge, without the state executives being involved and saying, you know, all of this is just to buy us time so that we can eventually throw it back to the House instead of doing it the way the Electoral Count Act does it. So that's where you start to see the hiding of it, the not doing it pursuant to the processes that are in place. That's where you you see the term. Let's actually uh, zero in on that element of doing it in private. They write, and it's really detailed. They talk about the logistics and the messaging and the timing of it. There's no requirement that they meet in public. It might be preferable for them to meet in private to thwart the ability of protesters to disrupt the event, witness this via video, what happened when the Trump-Pence electors met in public in 2016. Even though the Trump-Pence victory in Wisconsin had not been contested, even if held in private, perhaps print and even TV journalists would be uh, invited to attend to cover the event. They knew. They knew that this would be something that would obviously get protesters. But how, does the, how do you reconcile this with John Lowe's defense of, of the, uh, the scheme where he says these were alternates, not fakes? Well, they lied to them. I mean, that's that's one way, right? Um, these were not just alternates for two reasons. One, they lied to them. I mean, they didn't give them this memo. This is why it didn't surface until later, I think, because they only sent it to Wisconsin. They didn't send it to the other states. Uh, one of the reasons the January 6th committee didn't get it. Uh, and then when people were asking about what this was, they didn't say, you know, uh, this is just an alternate thing. They were going to send them in. They told them they wouldn't do that. They said it was only in case... They won and then they needed them. But in fact, they sent them in anyway. Uh, So, you know, they were lying to the electors about what was actually happening. Mm -hmm. That's why this comparison that you're hearing Trump's lawyers use often to, you know, Nixon and Kennedy is not the same because it it was totally different circumstances in terms of when they were actually going to be used. These people, as you said, were told we'll only use them if a court sort of rules in our favor and we need them to make it official. And that's a really key difference. And then they actually filed lawsuits that weren't even in place to try to paper that even more, right? So if your position is we're only going to use these if we need them, if we win the litigation, in some of those states, there wasn't even actual litigation at the time. So they had to go into, I think, New Mexico and file a lawsuit so that they could say, oh, you're actually just alternates in case we win. There has to be something to win. So that's another way you know that this was not legitimate. All right, Jen Rogers, uh, we're just starting to get into this memo, so we'll be talking about it throughout the morning. Thank you so much. Overnight, Ohio voters overwhelmingly rejected a measure that would make it harder to change the state's constitution. So what is next as the state looks ahead to a vote on abortion rights? Also, a hurricane is whipping up huge wildfires in Hawaii. You see the plumes of smoke there. Uh, Some of this literally jumping into the ocean, some people to escape the flames. Latest details on what's happening there ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Overnight, Ohio voters rejected what's known as Issue 1. This is a measure that would have changed the state's referendum law, allowing an amendment to the Constitution. Uh, It was driven by Republicans ahead of an upcoming November vote that has abortion rights on the ballot. So what does this mean for the state and for the nation? Joining us now, political political video reporter from The Washington Post, Joyce Coe, CNN political commentator, Errol Lewis, and CNN senior political analyst, Ron Brownstein. Welcome to you all. Um, so let's just start with the, the trend here. Uh, and Joyce, I'll bring this to you first, is that uh, when there have been these initiatives on ballots, any of them that have happened since Dobbs that has uh, supported or extended, expanded rights to abortion, they've succeeded, those who have not have failed. So place Ohio, this piece of the puzzle, in that trend. 
That's right. We've seen this in California, Vermont, Michigan, Montana, um, states where voters have been asked to vote on the issue within their own state constitutions on the issue of abortion. And repeatedly, voters have sided with protecting abortion. Um, and we even see this in redder states like yeah. Kansas and yeah. Kentucky, where voters there, it was kind of a double negative where they rejected not, you know, rejected including mm -hmm. explicitly, you know, taking abortion out of a, as a state constitutionally protected right. Um, so we've seen this in blue states and red states. And I think what you're seeing here illustrated is that there seems to be a gap between what GOP lawmakers in state legislatures want yeah. and what voters are actually saying. I think that's such a good point. Ron, um, the, the New York Times piece on this, the very end of it had such a fascinating quote this morning by a 46-year-old Trumpy Trump voter, how they describe him, very conservative voter in Cincinnati. Tom Baker told the Times that this was basically a last-minute attempt by the state legislature in Ohio to uh, tilt the playing field in favor of, quote, all of the touchstones that the aging conservative population is trying to force on generations. He goes, I don't like the idea of changing the mechanisms of government, especially for an agenda. That is exactly to the point that Joyce is making. Yeah, well, look, I mean, we've seen this very consistently, and the ballot results in both blue states and red states reflect the polling. I mean, the Public Religion Research Institute did a massive project last year, and they found that in 43 of the 50 states, a majority said abortion should be legal all or most of the time. And we saw in 2022 that abortion rights, in fact, were a powerful issue for Democrats in blue-leaning and swing states in helping them to reverse the usual losses for the president's party in a midterm. And it was critical in governor's races in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, Senate races uh, in places like Arizona, Pennsylvania, uh, New Hampshire, and Nevada. Um, the question has been, Poppy, mm -hmm. whether they could extend that into electoral gains in red states. In red states like Florida and Ohio uh, and Texas, where, where Republicans actually did ban abortion, they didn't suffer. There wasn't a real backlash. A, a, a higher percentage of voters who support abortion rights still voted for people like Mike DeWine, who signed this six-week ban. Yeah. A critical question for Democrats in 24 is, can they extend this backlash into actual campaigns, not only ballot initiatives and not mm -hmm. only in swing states, but also in red states? So, Errol, it was Republican-led, but as we know from the, the count of the votes, that it wasn't completely Republican-supported. Let's look at 2020. Trump won by about eight points in Ohio. Uh, this was rejected by roughly 14 points. You get a 22-point spread there. What does this tell us about the challenge for Republican candidates? You've got LaRose, who was, you know, the, the, he's running for Senate in the primary. Secretary he's State. Yeah, Secretary of State there. He was the highest-profile supporter. What's this mean for Republicans? Well, it puts them in a very interesting and difficult situation because the, that same three to two margin by which uh, the ballot measure was defeated is that is the same sort of roughly three to two measure by which polls say Ohio voters wanted to see some version of abortion rights protected. And they're ready to go to the polls and do it all over again. And then if you look at the map, it's really interesting, Victor. I mean, if you look at the not not just the cities where you would expect uh, left leaning or more progressive voters to, to come out in big numbers, but also the surrounding suburbs outside of Cleveland and Toledo and Akron and, and, and you know, Columbus and Cincinnati. And so that's going to be the real uh, playing field. That's going to be the real er area where all of this gets fought. And if those who defeated this ballot measure uh, kept some machinery on the ground, keep their mailing lists, try and get ready to mobilize all over again, 
the Republicans are going to have a very hard time. Not just statewide, but in every county, yeah. Trump outperformed this, yeah. this, this measure. That's such a good point. Every county. That's such, and the spread you talk about is yeah. remarkable. Uh, this is what Nancy Mace has been, like, screaming to her party. Guys, mostly guys, not all guys. Like, you're not getting it. You're not reflecting what the voters want. And it's going to cost us next yeah. time around. And this is what we talked about last time. It's like she is signaling to her party a warning sign if— you know, you take the most extreme approach on something like abortion, does it isolate more moderate voters of the party? And that's, you know, the big question, especially as we look to, towards 2024. What are Republicans going to do as far as their messaging goes on federal abortion bans? We've seen, you know, Susan B. Anthony, an anti-abortion conservative group coming out and really railing against candidates that are not explicitly stating that. So what do they do? What do Democrats do to harness the mm -hmm. uh, abortion issue is sort of a big question. Appreciate well, it. Yeah, Ron, last word. Go ahead. Real quick, uh, you know, what they do is talk about the possibility of a national ban with Republicans holding unified control. And there's Democratic polling showing that the vast majority of voters in the swing states believe that if Republicans do have unified control, they will try to ban abortion on a national basis. That's what could make this poppy, I think, much more potent in Ohio than we saw in some of the red states in 22. They will, in all likelihood, vote in November to restore abortion rights, and then Sherrod Brown will be able to campaign, campaign against a Republican nominee who he says will threaten to immediately mm -hmm. override that decision with a national ban. That could be a strong argument. Uh, that's a really interesting point. Uh, stay with us, everyone. We appreciate it. Overnight, the Montgomery, Alabama police chief says that he expects more charges to be filed after this brawl you've probably seen online. We'll be joined by the city's mayor with those new details. And someone in Florida is $1.58 billion richer, to be specific, this morning. The Mega Millions jackpot expected to be the largest in the game's history. The ticket was sold at a public supermarket in Neptune Beach, Florida. We're going to take you there next hour. And in case you want to know just how close you got to the jackpot, here are your winning numbers this morning. 13, 19, 20, 32, 33, and Mega Ball 14. I kept thinking... We do have this breaking news. A state of emergency has just been declared in Hawaii after a hurricane sparked wildfires there. Officials say strong winds from Hurricane Dora, which passed south of Hawaii, has fueled these flames and burned multiple structures in Maui. Also on the Big Island, evacuations have been ordered there. The Coast Guard says they had to rescue 12 people in Maui who desperately jumped into the ocean to try to escape those flames. Derek Van Dam covering all of it for us in the CNN Weather Center. You just spoke to officials on the ground in Maui. Derek, is that right? Yeah, I did, Poppy. I spoke to uh, Chief Emergency Management Officer. She's a communication officer for the Maui uh, Emergency Management. And uh, what she was telling me uh, sounded like a very dire situation happening, especially on the west and south side of Maui, the island of Maui. Remember, this has got some mountainous terrain to it, so that's helping fuel some of these winds. But uh, just what she told me uh, that 911 services are down on the west side of the island, and that is where a majority of the hotels, businesses, and residential properties are located. So you can imagine the frustrations and the difficulties there without having that emergency communication available. Also describing moments, harrowing moments, where people actually had to jump into the ocean just to avoid fire and wildfire smoke. Uh, they were rescued by the U.S. Coast Guard, brought to safety. But there are currently multiple fires ongoing on the upper and west side district. 
That's where the combination of hotels and uh, resorts are located, but there are also mandatory evacuation orders. She called this an all-hands-on-deck situation. They're requesting extra fire personnel from the state, and they're in that process of making that uh, actively occur right now. Three active fires on three different portions of the island, all being fueled indirectly by what was Hurricane Dora that uh, just moved south of the island chain within the past uh, 24 hours or so. So what we're seeing is this kind of influx of easterly winds that uh, is helping fuel and uh, fan these flames. We've had wind gusts, get this, in excess of 80 miles per hour on the west side of Maui, according to uh, the chief uh, communications officer I just spoke to a moment ago. That is equivalent to a hurricane category one status. So uh, that really puts it into perspective what they're dealing with. These types of winds in combination with the ongoing drought and the dry relative humidities are just, uh, you know, the ingredients to spark those fires and to fan the flames. We currently have high wind warnings for much of the Hawaiian islands, including Maui, the big island, gusts over 60 miles per hour that will last through the course of Wednesday. Red flag warnings are in place. And that means that they understand that this uh, is a very fluid and active wildfire situation for the island of Maui. No, nope, no question about it. Really appreciate the update, the reporting, Derek. Thank you. Okay. The rapper who shot hip hop star Megan Thee Stallion in the foot is now facing 10 years in prison. The district attorney in Los Angeles announced a judge there sentenced Tory Lanez yesterday afternoon. Now, three years ago, after an argument, Lane shot Megan in the foot as she was getting out of a vehicle they were in. He pleaded not guilty to three felony charges, but a jury convicted him in December. CNN's Chloe Malas is here. Ten years. Uh, are we hearing anything from, from Lane's or his attorney since the sentencing? Yes, and we've been following this since 2020, and it has been in the headlines with Megan Thee Stallion having previously written an essay about this and her being very open and obviously Tory denying this the entire time, uh, pleading not guilty. Take a listen to what... Uh, Tory Lanez's attorney has to say. This case, uh, to, to get a 10-year sentence is extreme. And really just another example of someone being punished for their celebrity status. So they are going to fight this 10-year sentence. He's currently out on bail while pending appeal. But I want you to hear the flip side of what the district attorney in Los Angeles County has to say. Over the past three years, Mr. Peterson has engaged in a pattern of conduct that was intended to intimidate Ms. Pete, silence her, uh, and keep her from defending and bringing her truth out. Despite the physical violence, verbal attacks, and attempts at public humiliation, Ms. Pete remained strong and shared the events of that faithful night with the jury and the world. So clearly, you know, two different um, versions of what happened on that night in 2020. And obviously his legal team is prepared to fight this. And I know, Poppy, we were talking before the commercial break about what is Megan saying. And yeah. that is what everybody wants to know right now. And like I said, she had written an essay last year. But in a statement that the, that the district attorney said, she thanked the jury. She thanked everyone who had you know, come to realize that she thinks of others around the world who are victims of violence and survive, and it is truly the most powerless feeling. Um, and she talked about how she is a person of status and who can have this type of legal team and fight for herself, while many can't. Yeah. Yeah. Chloe, I'm glad you brought us that reporting. Thank, Thank you. you, Chloe.
Ron DeSantis has replaced his campaign manager in another major shakeup as he struggles to close the gap with Donald Trump. Our political analysts are standing by to weigh in on the future of his White House run. Big shakeup again in Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign just two weeks after the White House hopeful fired a third of his staff to cut expenses. The Florida governor is now replacing his campaign manager with a loyalist, current chief of staff, James Uthmeyer. Joining us now back at the table from The Washington Post, Joyce Coe, CNN political commentator Earl Lewis, and CNN senior political analyst Ron Brownstein. Guys, thanks for coming back. Uh, what I find really, really interesting here, they're going to keep uh, uh, Ms. Peck, Janera Peck, on the team, they're, but they're going to put Uthmeyer, who appears, Ron, to have less experience running campaigns in to run the campaign. And I thought the Times made a good point just pointing out how this highlights how loyalty yeah. is so critical to Ron DeSantis. It's not about bringing someone in from the outside who's run successful presidential campaigns. This is about people that know him, Casey, his wife, the family deeply. Yeah, it's kind of emblematic of what has been, you know, an ongoing challenge. He, he knows what worked in Florida. It hasn't worked on, on a national stage, even among Republicans at this mm -hmm. point. You know, John McCain is kind of the patron saint of people who uh, who shake up the late John McCain, of people who shake up their campaigns. He did it in 2007 and came back to win the Republican nomination in 2008. More often, uh, this kind of move is an indication of a campaign that is obviously uh, struggling. I mean, you, you can create a more organized, streamlined structure that can satisfy some of the complaints from donors who feel that the money is not being spent well. But the bigger question is the, the message and the strategy. DeSantis mm -hmm. has chosen, as we've talked about many times, to run a Trump primarily from the right that has boxed him in. Now, with that strategy, he may, in fact, be able to win Iowa, where he's putting all of his chips. The question is whether that can allow him to build a big enough coalition to win the whole thing. And I think even after this change, real quick, the issue is whether the cement has already set in terms of how voters in the Republican primary are viewing him both ideologically and in their personal view of him as someone they can relate to. Errol, when I first read this, I was wondering, the first thing I said, already? Because just a couple of weeks ago, there were the layoffs. And I'm thinking, is this a continuation of this, the, the shakeup? Or is this something that they realized the first one didn't work? Because the latter is, is frenetic. It's sure. frantic. Well, look, I think that, look, we should call it what it is. The campaign is in free fall. Uh, they need, in order to win, you need money, you need message, you need momentum. And he's short on all of those things. The money has been wasted to a certain extent. Uh, the, the messaging is completely unclear. And the momentum, you know, you can't find a state where Ron DeSantis is clearly going to win. And then, you know, the added complication is that under the rules that we have, which are in bad need of reform, obviously, um, if you have one rich donor behind you, if you're, you know, Chris Christie or Nikki Haley, uh, or Tim Scott, you can hang in indefinitely. You can make the debates. You can continue to sort of pound away. And to the, to the extent that anyone is going to challenge Donald Trump for the leadership of this party and win the nomination, they're going to have to consolidate some of the opposition. And that Ron DeSantis has not even begun to, to do. But DeSantis's biggest donor has also been warning, like, unless things turn around here, you may not continue well, well, to get well, a right. lot more from, Don from Donor me. management in this twisted a big system is a, is a big, big deal. Donor management. <laughs> Joyce, the diff I think a great point that Ron brings up, um, John McCain and his ability to turn things around after he shakes up the staff, win the nomination. But he didn't face a spread like this. I mean, the New York Times Siena poll has Trump at 54 percent nationally, DeSantis at 17 percent. Isn't that a key difference? Yes. And historically, candidates who have had shakeups like this before the primaries have historically, you know, not gone on to do well and win the party's nomination. DeSantis could be an exception to that. But 
what we're seeing is, you know, as Errol was saying, he has numerous mega million, you know, donors who are contributing to his campaign in large sums. He burned through 34 million just within the span of March through June. And so what we're seeing is that his campaign is seemingly overspending and still not catching up to Trump in the polls. Uh, as you said, you know, just lagging behind uh, Trump is above 50 percent. He's around 17 percent. Um, so what does he do to really turn this around? And will this shakeup be the key in that? Or will this just be another indication of where his campaign is headed? So, Ron, as we and the campaign has learned that the anti-wokeness message alone is not going to make him more competitive with Trump. Bringing in Uthmeyer from the office in Tallahassee to the campaign, yeah. according to the lawsuit uh, related to the migrant flights from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, Uthmeyer was the person who hatched that plan, or at least one of them. So what does that suggest mm. about the messaging, about the strategy, if they're going to double, triple down on anti-wokeness and, and stunts like that? Yeah, I mean, it goes to the point we were talking about uh, a few moments ago, which is that, you know, DeSantis did well in Florida and thought he had a template for speaking to a national Republican audience and then beyond that, a general election audience. And it simply isn't working. I mean, he's, he's in the worst of both worlds now, Victor. I mean, by trying to run at Trump primarily from the right, he has failed to peel away any material number of the most conservative voters in the party who are strong, voting for backing Trump and polling at higher rates than they were in 2024. But he is alienating uh, a, a, you know, a big share of the more moderate college plus Republican voters and donors who are the natural base for any coalition uh, against Trump. So, you know, for DeSantis now, the question, I mean, he's clearly moving in a different direction. He's opening himself up more to interviews with the mainstream media. He's tiptoeing toward more direct criticism of Trump, even though he always qualifies it with, you know, with attacks on on Democrats in a way that, that, that make it, you know, kind of difficult for the message to come through. Uh, as again, I think the question is, have, vo have voters made a judgment about him that leaves him with too narrow Elaine, I do think him doubling down in Iowa is inexorably what you see for someone chasing a front runner. Mm. But the issue is, even if he does well in Iowa, if he is defined in such a narrow lane, it becomes really hard to build a coalition big enough to take down a figure as commanding in the party as Trump is. All right, we'll see if this brings some obvious change for the campaign. Ron, Joyce, Errol, thank you. Beyonce, Taylor, and Barbie this summer has highlighted the economic power of women. I think what we're seeing right now is that women are not to be underestimated. They lift up economies and that impact is not to be overlooked. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Tonight, Swifties in Los Angeles will flock back to SoFi Stadium to see Taylor Swift's final Eras Tour performance until October. Swift's six-night residence there in L.A. has brought in major money for businesses. A new report from the California Center for Jobs and the Economy estimates that tour there, those six days, will bring $320 million to the city. CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz reports. We're waiting to see if we get the tickets. It would have been a cruel summer if not for this moment. We're going to Taylor Swift. 
This group of moms, sisters, sisters-in-laws, and cousins are Swifties. How many of you ladies in the room have been to the Taylor Swift concert? <laughs> we also have Barbie fans. <laughs> I loved going with my family. I don't think I would have rather had it any other way. Women and girls of all ages are flocking to Taylor Swift, Beyonce, and Barbie. These women are resonating with other women in mm -hmm. a big, big way. Yes. What are you seeing in this moment that may be different than other moments with these three women? Women are not to be underestimated. They lift up economies and that impact is not to be overlooked. But brands haven't been talking to them in their language for a really long time. That language is authenticity and empowerment. Generations of women are sharing these experiences together. The result, one billion in box office sales for Barbie, Beyonce's economy-driving tour, and extra U.S. dates added later this year for Swift's Eras Tour to meet demand. It was a gift to me to watch them experience her, right? It, it was amazing. I remember when Taylor came out, I was videoing their reaction. And that is something that will live with me forever. And that feeling, bottled up, is priceless. It's unleashed the spending power of women, which has always existed, but is now being harnessed through other fearless women. It was nice to be a part of things that had such a girl-positive message, which is definitely not the norm. So hopefully, maybe this sparks the turn, and maybe we get to see some more of that. Two canceled flights was not going to stop Helen Polisi from meeting her daughter, Julie, in Los Angeles. I made it! Woo! <laughs> For the final leg of Taylor Swift's tour in L.A. Come hell or high water, I was going today, <laughs> so I made it happen. A last-minute first-class ticket later, two concert tickets, dinners out, the outfits and the beads, it all adds up. Men go to a lot of sporting games and spend a lot of money on sporting tickets, and that's never like considered absurd or, absurd or over the top. Like, why? Like, for us, this is like my Super Bowl. The duo also has plans to see Barbie together during their self-described Girl Power Weekend. This summer has really been a celebration of like women coming together and like really embracing female friendships and doing things together. It's like the first time women my age, women my mom's age, even like little girls are seeing like femininity and femaleness portrayed in such like a positive light where you just feel so happy. And many of these girls and women are going to be repeat customers to these concerts and the Barbie movie. The young girls who you heard from want to take their moms who haven't seen the Barbie movie yet. That family of 10, they all want to go to Taylor Swift again. And we can't forget the men and the boys who go to these concerts. Please don't. And go to see Please Barbie. Don't. If you haven't heard, <laughs> where are you going? Victor's going to. Oh, the Renaissance tour on Saturday Beyonce. at Mercedes Benz. Exactly. Are you yes. going with any women or just three? Three. There you go. Yeah. So it's also about the men and the boys who go to support the women yeah. and have just as much fun and also receive the message just mm -hmm. as much as the women. It's such a great experience for for people of all ages, and it's amazing to see the multi generational families that are going. Yeah. The grandmothers. Yeah. The mothers and the daughters. I took Luca, my five-year-old son, to it Barbie. It also feels good he to have it. something to look forward to, yes. right? To have the kind of months of Somewhere anticipation of, of the concert, just have that night. It's a good time. I'm only a little jealous. <laughs> yes, Enjoy thanks. Beyonce. I Great. will. Thank you. Thank Great you. Peace. Thank you.
So this morning, several New York beaches are shut down because of possible shark sightings. We'll take you live to a beach in Queens where a 65-year-old woman was bitten. Ohio's special election becomes a crucial new litmus test on abortion rights here in America. They voted down an effort to make it harder to amend the state constitution. This is the most salient, galvanizing political issue for women on the left. This is a wake-up call to Republicans. The problems politically that they are facing in a post-Roe world have not gone away. Boston County District Attorney Fonnie Willis will likely present her case to the grand jury next week. The Atlanta-based prosecutor has been lining up witnesses in the investigation of Donald Trump and, of course, his allies who are trying to overturn election results in Georgia. It's trending in that direction. She's had months, if not years, to pull all of this together. Trump sweating, swearing, and ranting in New Hampshire issues a darkly familiar warning about what he'll do in 2024. I'm sitting in a courtroom on bullshit because his attorney general charged me with something. Meantime, his closest opponent, Ron DeSantis, continued his staff shakeup. The problem with being a campaign manager is that when things go badly with a campaign, you usually get blamed for it. The Montgomery, Alabama Police Department identifies suspects in that chaotic brawl in a boat dock. Three white men had been charged with third-degree assault for their involvement in the incident. You see stuff like that on the TV, but to see it live, it's highly likely that more arrests, more individuals will face charges. The artist and rapper Megan Thee Stallion faced sexist and misogynistic attacks for reporting a shooting where she was the victim. A judge sentencing Tory Lanez to 10 years in prison. I think the punishment fits the crime. I think this is accountability season. Finally. Good morning, everyone. It's the top of the hour. We are so glad you're with us on CNN this morning. And as you saw, there's a lot of news to get to and a lot of developments overnight. Yeah, things happening right now we need to get to. Yeah, we'll talk about Ohio first. This morning, abortion right advocates are celebrating a crucial victory after a high-stakes special election in that state. 57% of Ohio voters rejected a Republican-backed measure that would have made it harder to change Ohio's constitution and protect a woman's access to abortion when it goes on the ballot this November. Under the failed measure, a 60% supermajority of votes would have been required instead of a simple majority. This all comes after lawmakers in Ohio and other Republican-controlled states passed abortion bans. Critics of this Ohio measure called it a GOP power grab. The voter turnout here was massive, especially for an August election in an off year. More than one million more Ohioans voted in this election than in last year's primary. CNN's chief national affairs correspondent Jeff Zeleny is live in Columbus. Message received from the voters there in Ohio. Good morning, Victor and Poppy. A loud message and a rare rebuke of Republican power here in Ohio. Of course, Republican leaders scheduled this special election on a Tuesday in August. Uh, many critics said to try and slip this through when people weren't noticing. Well, exactly the opposite happened. As you said, a record turnout for an August election. Not much precedent for that in recent times. But suburban voters, urban voters, a coalition of Democrats, independents and Republicans roundly rejected this amendment that would have raised the bar for an amendment in November to put abortion rights on the ballot. That will go forward. But this was also about 
more than abortion. Certainly, uh, the issue was the driving force here, but also a minimum wage proposal that is uh, likely coming next year, and simply just a power grab, as many critics saw it. At a victory party last night, that coalition had this to say. Ohio, we did it. We did it! Tonight is a major victory for democracy in Ohio. The majority still rules in Ohio. Together, we've delivered this unbelievable and amazing, but yes, absolutely true result of what Ohioans really want. Of course, this all started because hundreds of thousands of uh, petitions were signed to put that issue of the uh, abortion ballot on the measure in November. And this was an effort to uh, raise the bar and make that more complicated. That failed. The November ballot issue goes on. Right. So November, this will be on the ballot in Ohio, a crucial state, not to mention in the general election upcoming. What is it? What would it change there? Well, look, I mean, there was a 2019 law passed here, Poppy, that effectively banned abortion after six weeks of pregnancy without exceptions for rape or incest. That law has been on hold by the courts. But if this uh, constitutional amendment on abortion rights would pass in November, it would simply make Ohio fall in line with several other states that we have seen, like Michigan most recently, enshrine the protection of abortion rights into the state's constitution. And we saw in our CNN national poll yesterday that 64 percent of Americans disagree with the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. So Ohio becomes the latest examples of red states and blue states where if the citizens have their say, they are voting on the side of abortion rights. But again, this was about more than that here in Ohio. It was about trying to change the rules in the process. We don't know um, how the percentage here, 57 percent, will line up with uh, the question in November, but now they simply need a simple majority of 50 percent to uh, put abortion rights in the state constitution. What it also means, though, is that Republicans certainly have some thinking to do about how abortion plays into their party platform, because the voters here have spoken. This will be a driving issue. Democrats hope going into the 2024 election as well. Victor and Poppy. Certainly Jeff Zeleny for us there. Thank you, Jeff. Also new this morning, we're getting our first look at a key piece of evidence in the investigation into former President Trump and the efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. The New York Times has obtained a memo written by unindicted co-conspirator number five that is attorney Kenneth Cheesborough. The, quote, fraudulent elector memo was first mentioned in the indictment that came down last week, but we hadn't actually seen the memo until now. And while we know the contours of the fake elector scheme, this memo shows how it evolved and how it was discussed behind the scenes. In it, Cheeseborough writes the Supreme Court would likely end up ruling that the power to count the votes does not lie with the president of the Senate, meaning Mike Pence at the time. But even if it failed, he wrote that it would do two things, quote, buy the Trump campaign more time and would, quote, deprive Biden of electoral votes and or add to Trump's column. He also suggested what he was writing here proposing was a bold and controversial strategy. In this indictment, prosecutors say the memo shows the orchestration of a fake controversy that would derail the proper certification of Biden as president-elect. This morning, CNN has learned that Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis will likely be in front of an Atlanta-area grand jury next week presenting her case against Donald Trump. 
The sources say she may seek several indictments as she eyes a potential racketeering case that could cast Trump and his allies as operating a criminal enterprise to upend Georgia's 2020 election results. CNN's Sarah Murray joins us live from Washington, D.C. And Sarah, uh, for some time now, we've seen the barricades go up around the county courthouse, the security profile increase, and now we know potentially the timing of taking it to the grand jury. Yes, we're getting a better sense of the timing. It is looking like Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis will make her presentation before the grand jury at some point next week. She's already been lining up these witnesses and telling them, essentially, you need to be on a 48-hour notice to appear to testify before the grand jury. And these are people that already testified before a special grand jury that spent months investigating this case. So prosecutors already know what these witnesses are going to say. It's not about gleaning new information from them. But it's about using them to craft a narrative before the grand jury that they're going to seek indictments from, you know, people who can talk about the fake elector scheme, people who can talk about the presentation Rudy Giuliani and other Trump allies made before Georgia state lawmakers that was riddled with conspiracies. And when I was talking to legal experts for our story on this, they said, look, in a case of this magnitude, her indictments are probably already done, already written and have been done for weeks, if not months. If anything, she's probably making the finishing tweaks and touches ahead of this grand jury presentation next week, guys. Trump spoke about this last night at that rally in New Hampshire. Pretty much what we expected him to say, yeah? Yeah, I mean, he has been very harsh in his criticism of this black Democratic district attorney from the South, and we saw more of that last night. Take a listen to what he said. I probably have another one. They say there's a young woman... Uh... A young racist in Atlanta, she's a racist. And this is a person that wants to indict me. She's got a lot of problems, but she wants to indict me to try and run for some other office. Now, this is nothing that the district attorney's office, that the public has not heard from Donald Trump before, but it obviously comes at a time where uh, there's a heightened security presence. And she's been very clear that she and her team have faced a number of threats as a result of the sort of tenor around this investigation. They've been kind of inclined to brush off what Trump says publicly, although she has said previously to reporters that, you know, she draws the line. And if Trump starts coming out with direct threats against her, her staff, her family. Guys. All right. Sarah Murray for us. Thank you. Possible shark sightings shut down several beaches in New York yesterday. This is a day after a shark attacked a 56-year-old woman. CNN affiliate WCBS got this photo of first responders treating her on a beach right in New York City. Police say she was standing in the water, just standing there, when she felt a sharp pain on her leg and fell backward into the ocean. Our national correspondent Miguel Marquez is live from Rockaway Beach. Gosh, Miguel, I've spent a lot of days there. This is in Queens. This is in New York City. There are sharks here as well. This beach, Rockaway Beach, is closed. You can see the, the beach is open, but it is closed to swimming. You can see the, the red flags for as far as the eye can see. There were two possible shark sightings just east of here yesterday, and then one confirmed uh, shark sighting west of here. Those beaches shut down for a short time. Usually they shut them down for an hour when they have a possible sh shark sighting, and then they open them back up. Uh, this one they have closed. They may open it up later today because they're going to have some drone patrols up over the beach. I want to show you this, though. This is the beach where that happened, where that 65-year-old woman was attacked. Uh, first time in 70 years, as far as we can tell, uh, that a, a shark has bitten somebody here. But look at all the birds out there. I don't know if you can catch that, but there are lots and lots of birds out there feeding on schools of fish. And that's what brings wildlife like sharks into this area. I can tell you that there is... 
very few people. We saw a couple of surfers earlier uh, in the water, which they're not supposed to be because there is no swimming right now. But this is the beach. She was standing in sort of waist-high water out here. The shark came up and, and bit her left thigh, the, the back of her thigh, bleeding very, very badly. It was a very serious injury. Uh, and thanks to the lifeguards out here, they put a tourniquet on her. They were able to get her to emergency uh, care. And it looks like she's going to make a recovery, but very, very scary. The question now for New Yorkers, you know, it's summer, just when you want to go into the water. Are they going to be able to open up these beaches today? Back to you guys. Wow, Miguel, hope she's going to be okay. Yeah. Really, really scary. Thank you. Hey, if you know somebody in Neptune Beach, Florida, check call, on them. Call them. Just send them a, hey you, text message this morning. Because that's where one ticket holder is a lot richer after winning the 1.58, don't forget the .08, <laughs> billion dollar Mega Millions jackpot. Here are last night's winning numbers. 13, 19, 20, 32, 33, 14 is the Mega Ball. It's expected to be the largest prize in the game's history. The ticket was sold at a public supermarket in Neptune Beach. And that's where we find reporter Aaron Farrar from CNN affiliate WJXT. Aaron, I used to live there. I know that Publix well. Um, tell us about the excitement there after selling this, uh, this ticket. Oh, there's a lot of buzz here. People are just excited that there's some history that happened right inside this building behind me. The doors opened about 10 minutes ago at 7 o'clock. Some people didn't even know what was going on. They stopped us and said, hey, what's the excitement going on here? And when they heard the fact that winning ticket was sold here, of course, some people were a little bit disappointed and they wished it were them. But at the same time, they were excited for whoever this person was that's out there right now who is $1.58 billion richer. We're going to show you as people are starting to go inside. Some people are already inside shopping. I'm pretty sure they're talking with each other inside, also the workers as well. But of course, whoever that lucky person is, they have about 180 days to claim that prize. There are a couple of things they should do immediately. Of course, they're excited. They are probably not even realizing right now the severity of what just happened to them. But once all of that wears off, there are some things that they should do immediately. They should first document that winning. They should take some pictures of both the front and the back of that ticket. And then they should store that somewhere where only they know where it is and it's a place where they can access that easily. Then they should consider and strongly consider hiring uh, an attorney or some type of financial advisor to walk them through this process. And it should be someone who's an expert or a specialist in dealing with this kind of wealth. And those same people on that team should also review the lottery rules for this winner before they sign the original ticket. Again, that person has 180 days to claim that ticket, and they have to do that over in Tallahassee, the state capital, over at the Florida Lottery headquarters. They can do that in person or set up an appointment to meet with officials there and representatives there to claim their ticket in Florida. When it comes to the Mega Millions, you cannot remain anonymous. So this person, we will know who this person is eventually. Yes. We just don't know hey. when that's going to be, but they have at at least six months or so to do it. Victor's hoping it's a buddy from his You know, time. this is the thing. I'm telling everybody to text uh, or call your people in Neptune Beach. My advice for the person who won, don't answer any text from <laughs> anybody who texts, hey, you, after six years away, right? That's right. Change that number real Change quick. Change that number. Aaron Farrar for us there from WJXT, <laughs> Channel 4, the local station in uh, Jacksonville. Thanks so much. All right, police say more arrests could be on the way after shocking video showed a group of white voters 
brawling with a Black Riverboat co-captain in Montgomery, Alabama. Coming up, the city's mayor will join us live. We're also going to be joined this hour by the lieutenant governor of Hawaii, where a hurricane is whipping up huge wildfires. People are actually jumping in the ocean to escape the flames. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Breaking news just into CNN. 41 people have died in a migrant shipwreck off the coast of Italy. That's according to the Red Cross. This happened near the tourist island of Lampedusa. Uh, survivors tell the Red Cross the ship left Tunisia several days ago. It's unclear how many people in total were on board. A three-year-old child and a pregnant woman are among the dead. Uh, rough seas and 13-foot waves are said to have contributed to the shipwreck. Uh, they said passengers were wearing life jackets and survivors were able to crawl on remnants of different shipwrecked boats there. Almost 94,000 people have arrived in Italy by boat this year, according to the government. We, of course, will continue to follow this story and get you more as we get it. Oh, we certainly will. Now to this breaking news out of Hawaii. Ongoing right now, a state of emergency in effect this morning as wind-fueled wildfires are burning dangerously close to homes. Officials say strong winds from Hurricane Dora are fueling these fires. It have burned multiple structures in Maui. Also on the Big Island, evacuations are ongoing right now. And the Coast Guard says a dozen people were rescued after they jumped into the ocean to escape the flames. Joining us now is the Lieutenant Governor of Hawaii, Hawaii, Sylvia Luke. Uh, Lieutenant Governor, thank you very much. Is this unprecedented in the history of Hawaii? No, uh, thank you for um, um, doing this, Poppy and Victor. It is unprecedented. Um, when we deal with hurricane and disasters um, following hurricane, we're usually dealing with heavy rain, we're dealing with flooding. Um, the fact that we have wildfire um, uh, in multiple areas um, as a result of uh, indirectly from a hurricane is unprecedented. It's something that Hawaii residents uh, and the state have um, not experienced. And the fact that uh, we have uh, winds in in high 70s and still in the low 80s, um, quickly uh, spreading wildfires across um, highways and into different neighborhoods. It, it is, since the last time I spoke to CNN, it has um, turned very serious and very dire. Lieutenant Governor, we're looking at these pictures and these really tell the story of just how dire this is. Often when we talk about these wildfires, we're talking about damage to uh, agriculture, mm -hmm. maybe some structures, but there are there are injuries related to these. The hospitals are, are being stressed. Explain uh, how uh, this is hurting people physically. Well, absolutely. And our hospital system on Maui, um, they are overburdened with burn patients, people uh, suffering from inhalation. Uh, we are already um, in communication with other hospital system about relieving the burden, uh, the the. Um, the reality is that we need to uh, fly people out of Maui to give them burn support um, because Maui Hospital uh, cannot do extensive burn treatment. Um, so we're dealing with, uh, because we're an island state, in addition to dealing with disaster, we're dealing with uh, major transportation issues as well. We have heard that uh, 911 is down, not working, at least in some parts of western Maui. Is that correct? 
No, absolutely. 911 is down, um, cell service is down, um, phone service is down, and that's been part of the problem. Um, the Maui County has not been able to communicate um, with residents on the, uh, the west side, Lahaina side, and uh, what we are trying to do is deploy um, uh, individuals to go into areas with satellite phone service. Mm -hmm. uh, we have only been in contact with perhaps one hotel because the one hotel, um, the, the people in charge of that hotel has a satellite phone and that's the only way you can make connection and it's impeding communication impeding efforts to evacuate residents and we are very concerned about that. Evacuating the residents, yes, but also the tourists who are, are, are there as well. What is the plan? I know that this is a fast-moving situation, but what's the plan to get to those people who are there for just a short time? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that happened is we stopped, uh, we work with our airports to make sure that air, uh, airlines are not flying into Maui. Um, and uh, one of the things that we are doing is making contacts with the hotels to uh, get them evacuated. If we can, we're already working with um, a local airline to see if we can get tourists off the island to um, at least house them on another island like Oahu so that uh, we don't tax, overly tax some of the resources that will be going to Maui. What do you need from the federal government? You know, uh, one of the things that uh, we need, we have already uh, uh, made contact with the White House to declare at, as an emergency. Um, you know, we're going to need um, FEMA support. We're going to need um, uh, clearly National Guard support because we're going to need a lot of um, uh, foot traffic and foot support in order to go into neighborhoods um, because the only way of communication is either satellite service or uh, talking to individuals. Um, our sh shelters um, amazingly had to be moved several times because the fire, uh, these wildfires are moving very quickly, even as we speak. We appreciate it. We wish you luck. We're thinking of all of you, Lieutenant Governor of Hawaii, Sylvia Luke. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your concern. Of course. New overnight, the police chief in Montgomery, Alabama, is telling CNN he expects more arrests after an all-out brawl broke out on the city's riverfront on Saturday. We are surely looking at every piece of evidence that's come in. We have hundreds of videos and witness statements at this time. And, you know, I would say at this point, uh, it's highly likely that more arrests, more individuals will face charges. CNN affiliate WSFA obtained this mugshot of one of the white men accused of attacking a black riverboat co-captain. Richard Roberts is facing two counts of third-degree assault. A video shows a group of white boaters hitting and punching the riverboat co-captain while he's uh, there on the ground. Eventually, more people joined in, fighting on both sides. Police say it happened after he had asked the men to move a pontoon boat so the riverboat could dock in its designated spot. Joining us now is the mayor of Montgomery, Alabama, Stephen Reed. Mr. Mayor, thank you for being here. I'm sorry it is under these circumstances. It is just appalling to see what happened. Some have been charged, but it was very clear from the police chief on CNN last night there will be potentially additional charges to maybe those people and also more people charged. Can you detail what you're expecting? Sure. First, good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, it's certainly a disturbing video. 
Um, and you know, consequently, we're, we're not leaving any stone unturned in this investigation. Uh, we're looking at everything that we've seen, everything that has been uh, reported to us by witnesses, as well as those things that have been sent in uh, by other bystanders. Uh, this is a very serious situation. It's important that people understand that we're a welcoming community in Montgomery. Uh, we're always open for business, and, and we enjoy the tourism that comes here because of our proud civil rights history. But you have to obey the law. Uh, you have to obey authority. And uh, what we saw in that video was, was someone and a group of people who clearly did not. You mentioned the city's civil rights history, and that is important context for what we saw on that video. Um, when you saw it for the first time, you called it disturbing. Give me more. What did you feel and think when you first saw it? Well, I was surprised, you know, certainly uh, shocked even, you know, to see someone doing their job get attacked just by asking a person to move their vehicle. In this case, it was a boat. Uh, that's something that I think, uh, you know, shows a, a lack of respect for an individual. And uh, I just didn't appreciate, you know, someone that is working uh, to secure the safety of others who are on that boat uh, being approached like that. And I think that's an issue. And I think our police department has done a great job in putting aside uh, any emotion or, or what could have been and really looking at the facts. And I think that's what led to the arrest yesterday. And there are two others who were supposed to turn themselves in who did not. Mm -hmm. And um, since they didn't, we may have to go pick them up and give them a ride. Have you spoken with, let me first confirm, Damian Pickett, the yeah. black man who was attacked, he's a city employee? No, uh, these are contract employees. Okay, have you spoken with him? I have not this time. Do you plan to? Yes, you know, I will speak to all, all of those that, that were working on, on the Harriet uh, as we kind of go through this investigation. Uh, it's something for us to uh, make sure we're, we're, you know, dotting all our I's and crossing our T's uh, as we go through this. But certainly we, we expect to do that as well as some of the others. Now, the police have spoken uh, to Mr. Pickett. I've uh, gotten testimony from him about sure. what took place. And he was uh, one of the, the people who has uh, signed warrants. The captain of, of the Harriet II, uh, Jimmy Cottrell, said that he believes, in his opinion, this attack was racially motivated. We were looking this morning. There is a hate crime statute in your state. Do you expect that hate crimes charges may be brought? Yeah, I think it's important for us to, to understand that there was a, a young white uh, dock worker or, or someone who worked on the boat who also tried to help um, and who was attacked as well. Um, with that, you know, we're looking at this from all angles. And again, uh, we're working very closely with state and federal authorities. The FBI have told us at this time they do not have enough uh, information to make it a hate crime. But we're continuing okay. to ask witnesses and those who were there, those who have video, audio, to uh, share that with our police department. And then we'll be able to take those next steps. But I will tell you this, uh, we, we're taking this very seriously. You know, it's a priority for us. And it's important for people to understand that justice will be served and justice will be doled out fairly. Mr. Mayor, a part of the conversation that up to this point we have not had on air that I think we should is the reception and response by uh, black people online on social media. Maybe not exclusively black people, but a lot of black people who see this video and while police are looking for the man who used that chair as a weapon, uh, that man is being hailed. Uh, as a black man coming to the defense of another black man attacked by a group of white men. We have some of the memes 
uh, that have happened on uh, social media. I looked at someone who had the Montgomery, Alabama, the folding chair and the date tattooed on their arm. This is a collective defense argument for black people. Mm. How do you respond to that interpretation of what we saw, that the people who came to the aid are seen as heroes? You know, I haven't really been able to keep up with uh, many of the things that have been on social media. Certainly, we thank uh, all the people who had video uh, of this incident. It has helped our investigation tremendously. Uh, look, I'm a former judge. And so, you know, in, in that case, you know, I, I looked at things based on the facts and evidence presented. Uh, I do the same uh, as mayor here. And so when you consider that, you know, the main thing for us has been uh, what happened, why it happened, when it happened, and how it happened. And that's kind of the, the approach that, that we take. And I've been in touch with our police chief uh, every day. So I haven't been able to get into some of the uh, peripheral thoughts and, and responses that have been taking place. Because for us, the main thing was bringing uh, the people who were responsible for this to justice. And I want to commend our police department for doing just that and commend the community and those in the public for assisting us in that. So um, let me press that a bit more. You watched the video. You've described it. Um, you say you haven't seen what happened online. I understand that you, you got a lot going on. What would be your message to people who did jump in to help Mr. Pickett? Um, uh, the man swinging a chair, notwithstanding, but the people who helped to, to, I guess, join the fight, do you think they should not have? What should they have done? Oh, no, I understand that. Uh, no, I, I certainly understand that. You know, whether it's a sanitation worker, uh, police officer, first responder, uh, EMS, I certainly understand uh, those. We, we would have preferred, obviously, that uh, maybe they, they break it up. But I understand emotions taking place when you're trying to dock uh, for 40 minutes, 40 plus minutes, and you have someone who is not obeying the rules and not obeying the warnings uh, that they're being given. And I think certainly seeing a, a colleague, a coworker, uh, you know, being attacked like that, uh, you know, really brings about a different response. And so it's easy to uh, Monday morning quarterback uh, the situation when you're not in it. But I certainly un understand those who uh, took the notion to try to defend uh, their coworkers, someone that they thought was being mistreated. Yeah, he was just doing his job and tried to get them to move this pontoon boat for, for 40, 45 minutes. So they, once they saw it became violent, they came in to support him. Uh, Mr. Mayor, uh, Stephen Reed, mayor of Montgomery, Alabama, I thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Yep. Well, ahead, a new study shows this really popular weight loss drug, Wagovi, may actually reduce the risk of heart attack and stroke. What we know about all the potential side effects ahead. A popular weight loss drug called Wigovi may also reduce the risk of heart attack, stroke, or heart-related death by 20%. That's according to a new study from the company that makes the drug. It comes as use of weight loss in diabetes drugs like Wigovi and Ozempic skyrockets, but also as we continue to learn more about the potential side effects of both good and bad. CNN medical correspondent Meg Terrell is with us. So... Sometimes you hear this is great. Sometimes you hear about stomach paralysis. Right, that's just right. what I was thinking. Yeah. Just know, what I was thinking. I mean, is that something you want, want to risk? But what do we need to know? So 
Uh, people hear a lot about Ozempic and Wigovi, and these are just two of a new class of medicines that are really transforming the way doctors think about treating weight loss. And so the ones that are out on the market now include Ozempic, uh, Wigovi, and another drug called Mounjaro. Now, Ozempic and Mounjaro are both approved for type 2 diabetes. Wigovi is the only one actually approved for chronic weight management. And you can see in trials, uh, they've led to weight loss of between 5 and 22 percent. That 22 is for Mounjaro's uh, trial in obesity. So there are awaiting an FDA indication there. But now we're starting to see this data emerge actually showing that in addition to weight loss, they actually have protective effects against heart attack and stroke and potentially heart-related death. 26% was seen in a previous trial of Ozempic in people with diabetes. But as you mentioned, for the first time, we are now seeing this uh, protective effect with weight loss drugs alone in people who don't have diabetes, 20% there. Is it because of the drug or is it because of the weight loss you have associated with it? Well, it's not clear exactly what the mechanism is. Doctors say it could be improved markers of blood pressure, cholesterol, inflammation, also improved insulin sensitivity. But it's really been the conventional wisdom that losing weight should be good for you in terms of your heart health. But this is the first time we've actually seen a drug prove it out in a clinical trial. All right, Meg Terrell, thanks. Fascinating. So we have exclusive new CNN reporting that the former head of the Coast Guard covered up a secret investigation into sexual assaults at the Coast Guard Academy. When the CNN uh, investigation started asking questions, that was when I first became aware of the totality of the foul anchor. The former head of the U.S. Coast Guard spent years covering up an explosive investigation into rape and sexual assault at the Coast Guard Academy. That's according to a new CNN investigation. CNN was the first to report on the investigation's cover-up in June. It revealed a dark history of sexual misconduct at the academy that leaders covered up in favor of protecting the Coast Guard's reputation. CNN's chief investigative correspondent, Pamela Browns is li- Brown, is live in Washington this morning. So, Pamela, you spoke exclusively with the commandant's predecessor. What did you learn? That's right. We did speak exclusively with Admiral uh, Zukom, who launched Operation Fouled Anchor, but left before it was completed. He says he briefed his successor, Admiral Carl Schultz, about the importance of this investigation into sexual assault. And he said he expected it to be made public. But when the investigation wrapped up in 2020, the report with the disturbing findings of systemic sex abuse at the Academy was buried. When the head of the Coast Guard was nearing retirement in 2018, he prepared the admiral who was taking his place. So I'd sit down with my successor and say, here are all the things that, you know, know, budgetarily, um, but this was a big one. The big one was a massive scandal that was only starting to be understood. An explosive investigation into sexual assault at the Coast Guard Academy. I said, hey, we've got this investigation going on. There was no confusion whatsoever of the priority placed upon this. Admiral Paul Zucombs told CNN in this exclusive interview that there was no question the results of the investigation he launched would eventually need to be made public. It was my intent to be the public face of this event as the senior leader of the Coast Guard. And I regret we were not able to complete it um, during my watch. But once the investigation was completed a couple years later, Zucom's successor, Admiral Carl Schultz, did not release the results as expected. Instead, a CNN investigation found Schultz, the leader of the Coast Guard at the time, helped cover up the whole thing for years. Schultz would not speak to CNN. 
The report, dubbed Operation Feld Anchor, found dozens of cases of sexual abuse and rape at the Academy from the late 80s to 2006 that leaders ignored or mishandled. It was kept hidden until CNN reported it in June. By keeping the report secret, the Coast Guard avoided the type of intense scrutiny that could have forced more change in the handling of sexual assaults. It was completely toxic and devastating to my sense of self. CNN has talked to more than two dozen women and men who say they were sexually assaulted while at the Coast Guard Academy, including this former cadet who recently graduated. So you have to wonder if they had released this report, if they had done more to crack down on sexual assault, how your experience would have been different. You know, I often find myself wondering what my future would have been like. Time and time again, the academy and the institution don't protect their people. At a bare minimum, we owed it to these victims um, to provide some sense of emotional closure. Exactly why Schultz didn't release the report is still a question. There were plans for a Capitol Hill briefing on Operation Fouled Anchor in late 2018, according to a memo viewed by CNN. But that apparently never happened. For an investigation of this magnitude and, and, and the number of events, um, this rises to the very top of the organization. Um, you know, this isn't a mid-level staff decision. Members of Congress even asked Schultz about sexual assault in the Coast Guard in a remote hearing in 2021 but he still failed to mention the investigation. We want to bring accountability to all matters. We want to prevent sexual assaults. And according to sources, he and his team also kept the report hidden from leaders at the Department of Homeland Security, which oversees the Coast Guard. I again apologize to each victim, survivor, their loved ones. The Coast Guard didn't come clean until just over a month ago when Schultz's successor, Admiral Linda Fagan, testified at a heated hearing and announced she was launching a 90-day investigation. We failed the committee when we did not disclose in, in 2020. When the CNN uh, investigation started asking questions, that was when I first became aware of the totality of the fouled anchor. Senator said in a letter to the Coast Guard, that that failure to disclose conflicted with legal requirements for reports on sexual assault at the Academy to be shared with Congress. This episode is probably the most shameful and disgraceful incident of cover-up of sexual assault that I have seen in the United States military ever. Ironically, the final report on Operation Feld Anchor showed the Coast Guard Academy's reputation took precedence over concern for the victim. And former officials tell CNN that's exactly what happened again when the report was hidden. If you read through the investigation, um, there were conscious decisions made by leadership at the Coast Guard Academy, maybe trying to protect the image of the Coast Guard, you know, loyalty to an institution, and not doing what's honorable to a victim of sexual assault. The Coast Guard officials did not comment on Schultz's involvement, but they want to make clear that the current Commandant, Admiral Linda Fagan, was not briefed on the investigation when she took office like her predecessor was. However, CNN's reporting does show that there are other people who currently work at the Coast Guard who were involved in the operation. Poppy, Victor. Wow. Pamela, some uh, really important uh, reporting there. Thank you so much. And as we heard, it was when you took those questions yes. to them, you started reporting that they really uh, came forward and, and started their own investigation. Uh, Pamela yeah. Brown, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Hats off to Pam and that whole team on that remarkable reporting.
Florida Governor Ron DeSantis shaking up his presidential campaign again, replacing his campaign manager. Will it be enough to turn the tide? We'll discuss. And we just got new information on the format of the first Republican presidential debate. Details ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Overnight, huge news out of Ohio where voters rejected what is known as Issue 1, a measure that would have changed the state's referendum law, allowing an amendment to its constitution. This was driven by Republicans ahead of an upcoming November vote that has abortion rights on the ballot. Let's bring in two people who have a long history of running presidential campaigns. Uh, Nina Turner was was uh, the national co-chair, I should say, of Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign. Also, very notably for this conversation, a former Ohio state senator and Kevin Madden, former top aide to Mitt Romney, running his presidential campaigns in 08 and 2012. Nina, got to start with you. It's your state. You know, huge amount of money, over $32 million poured in, huge amount of attention. Who thought that many people, more than in the last election would come out for this, but they did. What does it mean for the state and the country? Yeah, they did. It's a win for Ohioans. Poppy is very clear that the GOP efforts to take away freedom, uh, take away the right of the people, people of this great state have had that right to put referenda on the ballot since about 1912. It shows very clearly that they were rejected and they were rejected soundly. So hopefully they have learned their lessons. It's also reminded me of 2011 when they tried to take away collective bargaining rights and they were soundly rejected there as well. So Ohioans showed up and they showed out and they did the right thing. So, Kevin, what's the message to your party? Every time the people have been asked since Dobbs about abortion rights, they have voted to uh, support them, to extend them, to protect them. However, the Republican Party is still fumbling over an answer on this. What's the takeaway for Republican from the Ohio vote? Yeah, no, it, it has sent, it sends a message that um, Republican uh, leaders and pro-life leaders have not really um, positioned themselves very well for a post-Roe world. Um, if you look at what Democrats have done, you know, they and progressives, they, they've done a really good job of not only activating their base around this issue, but they have now built a coalition that also involves G, uh, Republican moderates in the suburban areas, as well as independents. So if you look at the, the backdrop of the politics of this, um, Republicans have to go out there and pro-life advocates have to go out there and find a way to find a better message for what the post-Roe world looks like and what legislation looks like state by state. Uh, and they've got to go and build a coalition that sort of uh, uh, addresses the concerns that many Republican moderates who may have voted with Republicans who were pro-life before, but are now very worried about this post-Roe world. Because uh, that's the key to the sort of the, the bigger, broader political coalition that they need if they're going to prosper going forward. Republican debate uh, coming up in just a matter of weeks here is going to be on Fox. We just learned this morning the second one is going to be on Fox Business. I know uh, you're a conservative. You ran Romney's 2008-2012 campaigns. But does this surprise you, Fox and Fox? Well, first of all, you, you gave me a promotion. I was a senior advisor to uh, <laughs> That's to, what to we Romney. do on this program. Yeah, I know. Yeah, so, you didn't somewhere, run somewhere, yeah, somewhere Matt Rhodes, the campaign manager, is like, <laughs> hey, Madden works for me. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, but look, yeah, you know, I think that it, this is the, the Republican uh, candidates and the Republican campaigns, they're going right where they want to go, which is these base activist voters that really matter in places like Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina and Florida. And they want to speak exactly to those to those voters. And like that platform is a very, very big platform with those voters directly. Um, and, you know, the, the competition for those voters is going to be fierce, even as you see. Um, you know, former President Trump, you know, take a very sizable lead and have a strong hold on the nomination. Many of these candidates that are all fighting each other to break out as the Trump alternative, uh, this is the best place for them to go. Uh, Kevin, question two informs question three. I mean, when we asked you about Republicans trying to come up with a message and then you go into yeah. Fox and Fox Business for your debates, are you just talking to the same people? Because at some point you have to come out of this with a nominee. I'd imagine you want one who can win independent voters. Yeah. And what we've seen is that some of these positions that you're talking in this kind of silo are not reaching voters outside of it. Yeah, it's, it's a big concern if you're looking at how do we win a general election where the whole ballgame for a general election is going to be moderate voters, independent voters, suburban voters in the biggest sort of uh, uh, population centers around the country in these big battleground states, right? So one of the big challenges that, that every campaign, I think, has is how is it that you appeal to a base activist voter now, uh, but then you have to find a way to get out of that bubble and have a much broader appeal on a much broader set of issues, healthcare, the economy, energy, uh, national security, yeah. rather than just playing to these sort of very limited base, vote, base voter issues that have a limited appeal in a general election. Uh, Nina, I want to ask you about the sh shakeup number two in Ron DeSantis's campaign. He has replaced uh, the person who's going to run his campaign. It's now going to be James Uthmeyer, who uh, ran the shop um, for him before, was successful when it came to um, to work in Tallahassee, but does not have a lot of, there he is, a lot of political experience on the national stage. But someone who knows DeSantis' family extraordinarily well. Is this enough to make a McCain-like turnaround or no? No, not at all. I mean, the person that he picked also helped him with these culture wars. Yeah. I mean, this man, you have in uh, Governor DeSantis, he traffics in divisive and racist ideology. His strategy has been to try to out-Trump President Trump. It's not working for him. He's not spending enough time on the substantive issues like health care, the environment, economic disparities. We have one of his bigger donors that admonished him and said, the way that you're going is not going to work. Mm -hmm. This man is violent. He talked about slitting throats on day one when he was in New Hampshire. Can all of us imagine if then-Senator Barack Obama had said that on day one, two, three, four, five, or day 365, that as president, he would start slitting throats? He would have been called a very violent man. DeSantis is violent. There are people suffering. Children are suffering in the great state of Florida. But instead of dealing with the 45 percent of working Floridians who are living near or at poverty, children living in poverty, 70 percent of those kids are black or Hispanic. Instead of dealing with those issues, he has made it very clear that no blacks need apply, no women need apply, yeah. no immigrants need apply. And he thinks that these cultural we lost mm. Nina's shot at the top of the hour. It is 8 o'clock. We are yeah. sorry about that, a technical issue. But Kevin Madden is still with us. Quick chance to respond. Well, look, you know, if you're going to make a campaign manager switch, like, do it now in the summer. Uh, because the real big full tilt of this campaign 
which is going to be the fall and into the winter when you get to these early primary contests in places like uh, Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, th- that's when your campaign has to be hitting its stride. So make a campaign, you know, get on sync with your campaign manager now. But I will say, this is the last of the resets. The DeSantis campaign is not going to get any more opportunities to sort of change the leadership at the top. Instead, yeah. it's going to have to be about uh, making the case right now to voters and um, and proving to their donors and all their supporters that they're in it to win it. Kevin Madden and our thanks to Nina Turner yeah. as well. Uh, thank you both. CNN This Morning continues right now. Morning, everyone. Top of the hour and a busy hour ahead for us here on CNN This Morning. We're glad you're with us. Victor Blackwell by my side. Good morning. Good morning. Happy to be here. We are following this breaking news out of Hawaii where evacuations are underway right now. A hurricane is whipping up destructive wildfires. People have been jumping into the ocean to escape. Thousands are without power. We've got the latest on that. And Ohio voters uh, deliver a huge victory for abortion rights advocates. They rejected a measure that would make it harder to protect access to abortion when it goes on the ballot in November. Just revealed, the New York Times has obtained a secret Trump campaign internal memo that laid out the strategy to overturn the 2020 election. This is a key piece of evidence in the special counsel's probe. We will dig into all the details. This hour of CNN This Morning starts now. We begin, though, with this breaking news out of Hawaii. Evacuations right now underway this morning amid fast-moving wildfires. Officials say powerful winds from Hurricane Dora are fueling the flames that are burning multiple structures in Maui and on the Big Island. Officials say their emergency 911 and other phone services are down. That means a lot of people there cannot use 911. Huge hurdles they're facing in terms of getting to residents. Thousands without power as these fires continue to grow in Maui. The lieutenant governor of Hawaii just told us moments ago, this is an unprecedented disaster. Our hospital system on Maui, um, they are overburdened with burn patients, people um, suffering from inhalation. Uh, We are already um, in communication with other hospital system about relieving the burden. The reality is that we need to uh, fly people out of Maui to give them burn support. Let's go to meteorologist Derek Van Dam now in the Weather Center. Uh, What is described there is dire, and the lieutenant governor tells us this has never happened before. Wildfires that have been created uh, spurred by a, a, a hurricane. Yeah, Victor, I think it's important that we clarify that it's it's kind of a direct cause of the hurricane. We'll get to the details on that in just a moment. But I spoke to the chief uh, emergency management operator from Maui, and what she told me is that this is an all-hands-on-deck situation for their firefighters and the state personnel as well. There are three active wildfires on the island of Maui, but the western side of Maui is where they're focusing a lot of attention because the wildfire that is there is currently burning near residential and hotel districts. So some of the more populated areas of the island, there are currently over 14,000 people without power. That's roughly 20% of the entire island. We expect that number to continue to grow because we have seen scenes just like this. Look at the wildfire smoke just billowing out. And uh, later on in this imagery, you can see some of the residential neighborhoods being impacted by this ongoing wildfire. Again, this is on the west side. So here is a look at the current wind situation fanning the flames. Right now, the airport on Maui reporting 25 mile per hour sustained winds. 
However, there have been wind gusts in excess of 80 miles per hour. That is, get this, equivalent to a Category 1 Atlantic hurricane. So, very strong, very gusty, and it's not expected to let up anytime soon. We've got another 12 hours of this at least. Here's a look at a satellite image that we captured from, uh, from NOAA. What you're seeing right here, that orange area on the center of Maui, that's actually one of the current three hot spots that are ongoing across the, uh, the island. And then you can see the smoke that is billowing and moving in an easterly direction because of those powerful winds being indirectly uh, created by Hurricane Dora's passage just to our south. The problem here is that 30% of Hawaiian islands currently under drought conditions, and we have moderate drought right now over the hardest hit areas of Maui, so the western side of the island of Maui. Here's Dora. High pressure to the north, putting that squeeze with the pressure gradient, and that is creating the strong winds across the islands as we speak. All right, some Poppy. important clarification there and explanation. Mm -hmm. Derek Van Dam, thank you. This morning, Ohio voters have spoken, and abortion rights advocates have won a critical victory. A Republican-backed measure was soundly defeated in a high-stakes special election. It would have made it harder for voters to change Ohio's constitution and protect women's access to abortion when it goes on the ballot this fall. Voter turnout was huge. The failed measure would have changed the rules and required a 60 percent supermajority instead of a simple majority to pass the abortion amendment uh, when it goes uh, on the ballot in November. Critics called it a GOP power grab. And it all comes after lawmakers in Ohio and other Republican-controlled states passed sweeping abortion bans instead of letting voters decide at the polls. So our senior data reporter, Harry Anton, is here with uh, numbers that we need to know. What is the morning number related to what Victor was just telling us about? Yeah, yeah so, you know, look, we're talking about Ohio here, and I just want to give you an idea. You know, Ohio is a state that Joe Biden lost by eight points to Donald Trump, and he only won't get this. Seven counties in the state, just seven counties. Look at no on issue one. 22 counties, more than three times as many counties. The no issue here appealed to voters in the middle of the road, mm -hmm. as well as a number of voters on the right who traditionally vote Republican in this Republican trending state. And this is part of a trend, Poppy, whereby we have had a number of ballot measures, six ballot measures since Roe v. Wade was overturned. And look at the pro-abortion right side on these ballot measures. Yeah. They won on all of them. Red states, too, which is important. Blue states like Vermont. Yeah. And red states like Kentucky, like Montana, like Kansas. Yeah. So this is something abortion rights has been popular all over the map. And we have this new CNN poll. It came out this week. And it shows us still this strong support since Roe versus Wade was overturned uh, for not overturning it. That remains. That absolutely remains. All right, so disapprove of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. Look at this. All voters, 63%. You get 93% of Democrats. Look at that. 69% of independents. You also get nearly a third of Republicans here. Those are the types of voters who went into Ohio last night, probably, and voted no on that particular ballot issue. And here's the other thing, right? It's not just about abortion. It's about going to the rest of the ballot box. So I want you to take a look. This is a little complicated, but this is the average special election, and this is the Democratic margin. Look where we were in 2021 and 2022 before Roe v. Wade was overturned. The Democratic candidates were doing three points worse than Joe Biden on average. But look at where we were since Roe was overturned. Look here. They're doing about six points better than Joe Biden's been doing on average. So it's not just about abortion. It's on these other issues. What you're seeing is Democratic-leaning voters are more likely to turn out, 
and they're more likely to support Democratic candidates. So abortion, it's not just about abortion. It's about giving Democrats a boost at the polls on other issues as well. Fascinating, Harry. Thank you very thank much. You. Victor. All right. Thank you both. We're joined now by White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. Karine, good to see you this morning. Uh, first, with the, the president's reaction to the outcome of the vote in Ohio last night. So as you all have been saying, look, this has been what we saw in Ohio last night is a clear rejection to uh, Amendment 1, uh, which really is a win for democracy, right? It is a win for voting. It is a win for Ohioans. And it is so incredibly important. Just think about this. And you all have been talking about this all morning. I've been watching the show. Ohioans came out in an off-year election and literally rejected what Republicans elected officials were trying to do, what special interests were trying to do in the state, which is basically weaken uh, voters' rights, weaken the rights of voters in the state. And so what, what we saw last night is such an important victory as we head to a critical vote, which should be made by the people, decision that should be made by the people. When you think about how women in Ohio are going to are, are going to figure uh, they're going to vote to decide if women in Ohio is going to have the right, the freedom to make a decision on their reproductive right, to make a decision on their health care. So this is, again, a win for our democracy. We certainly know it's going to be part uh, of the president's argument uh, as we get closer to uh, Election Day. Let's talk about why you and the president are there out west. You're talking climate, but also economy. Um, and the latest CNN poll out just days ago showed that the Americans are pretty sour on the state of the economy. Uh, they think it's in a downturn or getting worse. About half of respondents, the president's approval rating for his handling of the economy is at 37 percent, 30 percent on inflation specifically. From the White House perspective, why is there disparity between the good story, the narrative you think you have to tell, and how it's received by the American people? So a couple of things, Victor. Look, as we know, polls don't show everything. They don't tell the full story, as you just stated. And we have to remember, if you look at where we were back in the fall of 2022 during the midterm elections, when the president delivered a historic uh, midterms for uh, for Democrats, when we think about how, uh, as a as a Democratic president, he uh, delivered a victory that we hadn't seen in decades, right? And he led that messaging throughout those months going into November. November. And we are in a stronger position now than we were back uh, back then in the fall. And so that is important to note. Look, there's a there's a lot going on in this country. And we understand that, you know, Americans are coming out of a pandemic. Uh, we are dealing uh, we're dealing with a lot when you think about uh, the economy. But here's the thing. This is a president who has spent the last two years turning the economy around. You hear us talk about binomics. You just mentioned how we're doing this West, uh, this kind of this West Coast swing, talking directly uh, to the American people about how wages are actually going up, about how inflation is going down over a long extended period of time, more than uh, more than uh, 12 months. That is important. That is important. Consumer confidence is up. And so when you see unemployment is lower than 4%, that has been steady for some time. This is what we are going to talk about. This is why the president is going out there, is going to talk directly to the American people to have that conversation. Again, polls don't tell the, the entire story. We're going to continue to tell our story, tell what we have done in the past two years. When you think about creating 13.5 wow. million jobs, 
that is all important. And so this is why I'm on with all of with the both of you to talk about that, to make sure that the president's message is reaching your viewers. You are telling the story. There, There is a narrative to tell that, that the numbers are changing. Uh, let me ask you about something here that the branding, you just used the word, we have it on screen, Bidenomics. Um, yes. We know the polls show that people are pretty sour, at least half American people are sour on the economy. Isn't that just dangerous getting closer to the election if things take a downturn? If, as the CBO predicts, unemployment will get closer to 4.7 percent by Election Day, that you've got a narrative now of Bidenomics and things going in a certain way, but that can quickly turn in the opposite direction. Why literally fuse the president's name with the, the economics that Americans aren't very happy with? Well, here's the thing. Bidenomics is indeed working when, when we say that you look at the data, right? Cost, cost is going down, right? We think about inflation. When you think about wages going up, that is binomics. Look, the president has always believed, not just as president, but as vice president, as a senator, that we need to build an economy that is building from the bottom up, middle out, right? We need to make sure we leave no one behind. He came from a middle-class family. You heard him talk about growing up in Scranton, what that means. He understands what the American people have gone go through, right? Sitting at your kitchen table once a month, trying to figure out how to pay those bills. So so this is why we talk about it in this way, because yeah. this is what he believes. And then let's not forget, you know, you have Republicans out there, especially in Congress, who want to do the opposite. You think about the Inflation Reduction Act that's going to help with the deficit. That's actually going to help make investments. We're talking about you guys were talking about what was going on in Hawaii. Climate change is affecting so many communities and they want to I'm, repeal that. I'm glad and, you mentioned I'm glad you, you mentioned know, climate so change because we're, wa we're watching what's happening in Hawaii and these really dire pictures, what's been described by the lieutenant governor who was on with us today um, the, with the wildfires related to that hurricane. The president did an interview with the Weather Channel in which he was asked about uh, declaring the climate crisis a national emergency. I want to show just a bit of that exchange. Are you prepared to declare a national emergency with respect to climate change? I've already done that. So you've already declared that national emergency? Practically speaking, yes. Yeah. But he hasn't done it. He corrected it saying, practically speaking, if the climate crisis is as important as this White House says it is, why hasn't the president declared a national emergency? And if so, when will that happen? So here's the thing, Victor. This is a president that has taken really an ambitious approach to climate change, right? I just started talking about the Inflation Reduction Act. That is a piece of legislation that is clearly now law that is so ambitious that is going to do, make an investment in dealing with climate change that we have never seen, we have not seen before. And so you think about $369 billion of investment into clean energy, that's going to make a difference. When you think about cutting pollution, uh, when you think about creating clean energy jobs, this is what we're talking about. You, th you talk about the bipartisan infrastructure law, right, that's going to strengthen our power grid, right, that's going to actually make efforts to deal with an existential threat. And you heard the president say that, and you have heard him say that multiple times. We were just in, in Arizona yesterday where the president uh, announced his fifth uh, national monument. And what is that going to do? It's going to honor the tribal uh, communities and, and the indigenous people by protecting land, most almost a million acres of land. And what does that do? That 
protects clean energy, that helps uh, the economy and local and the local economy and clean water, right? And so all of those things are incredibly important. And the president has been incredibly ambitious. Look, what the president was talking about is the uh, the defense uh, the Defense Production Act. That's something that he did very early on. What does that do? That makes sure that when when we th- when we think about the domestic approach, those clean clean energy manufacturing. So I, I, moved I a hear, Kareem, so that there is. There is a narrative, there is a story to tell, but specifically on what many advocates uh, have have asked for was the declaration of that national emergency on climate crisis. The president corrected himself. Uh, He has not done that. We got to go. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre joining us, especially early this morning from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Thanks so much for the time. Very early here. Yes, it is. Thank Thank you. Fascinating interview. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Great to have her on. Yeah, good. We have a lot ahead this morning. For the first time, we're seeing this secret memo from an unindicted co-conspirator in the federal January 6th case against Donald Trump showing the evolution of the fake elector scheme. What does this mean for the prosecution ahead? And just in this morning, the American Bar Association is taking action against attacks on the election system, launching a task force for American democracy. Its co-chairs, former Homeland Security Secretary under President Obama, Jay Johnson, and one of the country's best-known conservative jurists, Michael Ludig joins us next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. New this morning, we're getting our first look at a key piece of evidence in the investigation into former President Donald Trump and the efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. The New York Times has obtained a memo written by unindicted co-conspirator number five, attorney Kenneth Cheeseborough. The fraudulent elector memo was first mentioned in the indictment that came down last week, but we have not seen it until now. And while we knew the contours of the fake elector scheme, this memo shows how it evolved and how it was discussed behind the scenes. In it, Cheeseborough writes, the Supreme Court would likely end up ruling that the power to count the votes does not lie with the president of the Senate, meaning Mike Pence at the time. But even if it failed, he wrote that the scheme would do two things, buy the Trump campaign more time, and would deprive Biden of electoral votes and or add to Trump's column. He also says what he suggests is a bold, controversial strategy. In the indictment, prosecutors say that uh, the memo shows the orchestration of a fake controversy that would derail the proper certification of Biden Biden as president-elect. As Trump faces charges of trying to subvert democracy, the American Bar Association just announced this morning the creation of its task force for American democracy to look at ways to improve public trust in our election systems. This task force will focus on depoliticizing how elections are run, educating the public on the principles of our democracy, and addressing the root causes of the lack of trust in our elections right now. This task force is co-chaired by our next two guests, former Homeland Security Secretary under President Obama, Jay Johnson, he's now a partner at Paul Weiss, and former Federal Appeals Court Judge J. Michael Ludig, one of the country's best-known conservative jurists who advised former Vice President Pence's legal team in the days ahead of January 6th to reject these fraudulent claims by Trump allies. Early in his career, he worked in the Reagan White House. He served as a law clerk to the late legal titan Antolin Scalia. Secretary Johnson and Judge Ludig join us now for their first joint appearance as co-chairs. We appreciate it. And Judge, let me begin with you. For everyone watching at home, what will this task force do for them? Uh, Good morning, Poppy, and thank you very much for having uh, Secretary Johnson and and me on this morning. Uh, The most uh, important issue facing the country between now and 
and uh, the election in 2024 is American democracy. The uh, American Bar Association, under the new leadership of its new uh, president, Mary Smith, has uh, created a task force on American democracy, which will explore the, the, the causes and the reasons uh, for the uh, denigration in the perception of, of uh, American democracy by the American people, and will uh, explore ways in which to uh, rehabilitate and restore confidence uh, of the American people in, in our elections and in our democracy. Mr. Secretary, how do you change hearts and minds when so many lies are still being yelled so loudly by leading figures? Poppy, that's to the heart of what we're going to be doing over the next year with this task force. The opportunity for me to co-chair this task force with Judge Luddig, who, in my opinion, is one of the heroes of January 6th, mm -hmm. will be the capstone of my career in, in public service. Mm. We've assembled and recruited a group of really distinguished, extraordinary Americans to uh, be on this task force, including retired judges, state and local, federal, like Judge Ludwig himself, uh, commentators across the spectrum, election law experts, a cybersecurity expert, Chris Krebs, and two former candidates for president, uh, Carly Fiorina and, and, and Dick Gephardt. Mm. In my judgment, everything has to be on the table and what we assess from the issues you raise, voter confidence, to whether cybersecurity, uh, election, uh, social media, conventional press contributes to or detracts from our, our democracy, the safety of election workers, to frankly, the manner in which we elect uh, candidates for, for federal office. We're going to be engaging in a listening tour around the country. This will be very much a, a public exercise, and we're going to take a year to do this. Mm -hmm. uh, it's important, as Judge Ludwig said, democracy, the strength of our democracy and enduring democracy is the root of, of all else, which is why I think this is such an important exercise yeah. and inquiry. I want people to remember, uh, Mr. Secretary, you're, you're a Democrat. Judge Ludwig, you're a Republican, and you're working together on this. This is very bipartisan. Judge Ludig, we will all remember when you testified before the January 6th commission and you called Donald Trump, quote, a clear and present danger to American democracy. He is now three times indicted, potentially four. He is by far the Republican frontrunner. Do you think he is still a clear and present danger to American democracy? I, I do, Poppy, uh, uh, more so today than he was uh, uh, last summer when I testified before the Congress of the United States for these obvious reasons. The former president has uh, continued to insist and persist in his false claim that uh, he had won the 2020 presidential election and that it was stolen from him. And his Republican allies and the Republican Party have joined him uh, in that persistent claim to this day. So for the two and a half years since January 6, uh, these false claims have corrupted American democracy. They've corrupted American elections uh, and they've corrupted uh, the uh, perception of the American people 
uh, in America herself. Mm -hmm. uh, this must come to a conclusion, and the trials, the trials of the former president now will become, uh, together with the events of January 6, uh, the singular infamous events uh, in American history, whereby a former president of the United States for the first time in American history is prosecuted and tried for grave offenses against the United States of America at the same time that he is running again for the presidency of the United States as the presumptive Republican nominee for the presidency. Judge, you told our colleague Jamie Gangel after the latest indictment came down last week, these are as grave offenses against the United States as a president could commit, save possibly treason. Just to remind our viewers, you are a conservative's conservative. Trump is winning by a mile in the polls. Republican officials are lining up behind him. What do you think has happened to your party? I, I'm not a political person, Poppy, and uh, frankly, I don't care about the Republican Party at all, except to the extent that the, the two political parties in, in, in America are the political guardians of democracy mm -hmm. in our country. Uh, American democracy simply cannot function without two equally healthy and equally strong political parties. So today, in my view, there is no Republican Party to counter the Democratic Party uh, in, in the country. And for that reason, uh, American democracy is in grave peril. There is no Republican Party? In my view, and, and, and let me explain, Poppy. A political party is, is a, a collection, an assemblage of, of individuals who share a, a, a set of beliefs and principles mm. and, and policy views uh, about the United States of America. Today, there is no such shared set of beliefs and values and principles or, or even policy views uh, within the Republican Party for America until or unless the, the, uh, the Republican Party can mm -hmm. pull itself together uh, in, into a credible uh, Republican uh, Party, political party, mm -hmm. then we simply don't have two competing parties in America. Secretary Johnson, uh, when we look at the polling here, it is very disheartening so few Americans actually trust our elections. Only 42% are even somewhat confident in them. And the numbers are even worse when you look at how Republicans feel. Can we turn that around? I certainly hope so, Poppy. I, I'm an optimist about this country. I'd like to make the point that this task force, the work we'll be doing is about far more than, than Donald Trump, uh, though, he was the one that really lit the match for the conflagration on, on January 6th. But the work we're going to be doing is going to be strictly bipartisan by people who care about our democracy, care about our country, want to see the maximum voter participation, and want to see Americans 
have confidence in the importance of their vote and the importance of our democracy. And we're going to do that, Democrat or Republican, uh, on a strictly bipartisan basis because we want the American public to have confidence in the, in the work we do and the report we're going to issue. Yeah, it's really foundational to our still young democracy, right? They call it the American experiment, and we have to work together to uphold it. Before you go, Judge Ludig, to you, we have heard um, some central claims by Trump's legal team after this most recent indictment uh, that looks like the defense that they're going to present in court. They're going to make a First Amendment claim. This was all speech. They're going to say he just relied on advice of counsel, so he did nothing wrong, and that he truly believed that he won. And therefore, it's all okay and it's all legal. What do you think? Poppy, the, the special counsel, Jack Smith, uh, had anticipated that the former president would, would uh, claim the First Amendment in defense of the charges against him. Uh, and and uh, as a consequence, uh, Jack Smith brought charges uh, that, against the former president that, that would not allow for a First Amendment defense. Uh, and, and, and he did that in, in this way. The, the former president now stands charged with uh, criminal offenses of conduct. The uh, indictment makes crystal clear that uh, the former president was not being charged in any way whatsoever with his speech, uh, that is, uh, his calls for uh, the march on the Capitol and all of the, the multitude of other speech acts uh, that, uh, that he committed uh, on January 6th and, and even before then. Uh, you know, the, the, way, the way to think of it, uh, the way I think of it, Poppy, is that uh, the other offense uh, for which uh, uh, the former president could have been charged, and many thought he might be charged, was with insurrection against the United States of America. Uh, that would have entailed, at least potentially, uh, a, a charge uh, involving the president's speech. But Jack Smith chose not to bring that particular charge under 18 U.S.C. Section 2383, most likely to avoid the, the, the uh, First Amendment claim that the president uh, uh, was going to make uh, to begin with. Uh, as to the advice of counsel defense, uh, Poppy, uh, of course, you know, standing alone, any defendant would have uh, that potential defense. But in this particular case, for reasons that, that we won't go into here, uh, that defense will not carry the day for the former president. Hmm. And knowingly that he thought he won? Neither will, will that claim okay. uh, uh, prevent a, a conviction, uh, uh, oh. Poppy, because uh, the evidence is overwhelming that the former president okay. knew full well that he had lost the election, and, and the standard will be, could a reasonable person have believed otherwise uh, in the face of mm -hmm. the overwhelming evidence to the contrary? 
Judge Michael Ludig, Secretary Jay Johnson, thank you not only for your time this morning, thank you for committing your time to, uh, to this task force, which is so important for this country. I appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Poppy. You're welcome. Such an important conversation. And to hear Judge Ludig say there is no Republican Party. It stopped me in my tracks. Yeah, yeah. All right. We have our eye on the stock futures this morning. Uh, good story so far. But Moody's put the credit ratings of six large U.S. banks on notice for a possible downgrade. Moody's chief economist joins us next. Also, three people charged after that brawl at the Riverfront Dock in Montgomery, Alabama. The police chief tells CNN more arrests likely. Much more on that ahead. This morning, there are new concerns about the health of the banking sector. Stocks fell yesterday after Moody's downgraded several regional banks and warns that it could do the same to six larger banks. Now, the U.S. banking industry, you remember, was shaken earlier this year by the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank and First Republic, one after the other. Joining us now is chief economist at Moody's Analytics, Mark Zandi. Mark, good to see you. So, uh, is this the, the reason that these banks have been downgraded, that the same reason we saw the problems with those three banks earlier this year? Yeah, Victor, I can't comment on the ratings, but I think it's pretty clear the banking system is under a lot of pressure, similar to the pressure that existed back in March. Uh, you know, at, at root, it's the Federal Reserve's very aggressive uh, interest rate hikes. That's raising the uh, cost of funds, uh, the deposit rates that... Uh, uh, banks uh, uh, used to to uh, fund their loan growth, and uh, therefore it's undermining or weakening their profitability. There, and there's other issues, you know, credit quality, which has been very good, is starting to weaken. So I mean, delinquency and defaults on credit cards and commercial real estate loans are starting to rise. Loan growth is weak. Uh, you know, the economy has turned softer because of the higher interest rates. And uh, the banks themselves have tightened up on their, on, their, on their standards for making those loans. So there's a lot of things that are coming together that are putting pressure on the banks. And that's, you know, uh, I think pretty clear. What, one thing I, other thing I will say, though, uh, Victor, is that it, this isn't a surprise in this, to a large degree it's by design, right? The Federal Reserve is working really hard to slow the economy's growth rate down. And one way they do that is through, you know, putting pressure on the banking system so that the banks pull back on their lending, and that's exactly what's happening. You make such a good point. When the banks pull back on their lending, so what does that mean for you, me, and every American? Peggy and payroll. Remember yeah. Peggy and payroll, Mark? <laughs> I used to talk about her at 2 o'clock. The average person at home. What's it mean totally, to her? Totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah, because the thing is, well, you, make, you make it harder for someone to get a mortgage. It's more expensive to get a mortgage. I think Victor asked uh, Karine Jean-Pierre at the White House a brilliant question. Like, you're tying the president's name, Biden, to what this economy is going to look like on Election Day. Is that wise? I just think, are people going to feel more of this pain, even if inflation is, quote unquote, improving? Well, I think uh, for most people, number one economic problem is inflation, getting inflation down. And you know, one way you do that is you try to slow things down uh, so that the uh, you know uh, businesses don't raise their prices as aggressively. And uh, one way that you know that works is through you know making it more costly to go get a mortgage loan, an auto loan, more difficult to get a loan if you're you know a business. And and that's that's exactly how it works. It's no fun. Uh, you know, I, I, no one likes it. But you know, if you're going to get inflation back in the bottle, uh, this is part of the process. Good news is 
inflation is getting back in the bottle. It's moving in the right direction. And we'll get another read on that tomorrow with the consumer price index, but that should be a pretty good report. So things feel like they're moving in the right direction. Hopefully, you know, six, 12 months down the road, the Fed can start taking its foot off the brakes and lowering those interest rates and the banking system will you know, feel a lot better as a result. All right, Mark Zandi, always good to see you. Peggy and payroll, that was for you. We got the clear explanation <laughs> of what like all this means. Yes. For the now. person who sit at home, what's this mean? Thank you, Mark. The adult children of the suspected Gilgo Beach killer have now hired their own attorney who says his clients have been caught up in a hellscape. We'll talk to that attorney next. Also, a triple homicide investigation underway after a family was served what police suspect could be death cap mushrooms. What are those? We'll tell you ahead. Breaking news we're following here. 41 people reported missing and presumed dead in a migrant shipwreck off the coast of Italy. That is according to the Red Cross this morning. We know 45 people were on board at the time of the wreck. A three-year-old child, a pregnant woman, are sadly among the dead. Let's go straight to our CNN senior international correspondent, Ben Wiedemann, who joins us in Rome. Ben, uh, we just think back to what, what happened just a few months ago. What do we know about this wreck? Well, we know that this wreck was caused, uh, the immediate cause was a wave that basically capsized this boat that set out, uh, it's believed perhaps last Thursday from the Tunisian port of Sfax, heading in the direction of the Italian uh, coast. Now, four people have been picked up, survivors uh, from that boat, and they told the Red Cross that there were when the boat left Tunisia, there were 45 people on board, as you mentioned, uh, three, a uh, very young child, a pregnant woman, and others. And uh, this is really just the latest in a regular series of tragedies that are taking place in the Mediterranean as ever greater numbers of people are trying to flee uh, war, instability, hopelessness in places like sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, and as far away as Bangladesh. Now, this year so far, as of today, the 9th of August, nearly 94,000 people have reached, migrants and refugees have reached Italy alone. Now, that's double the number of people who, by this day last year, had reached Italy, and three times the number from the year before. So the number is increasing. This is a crisis that we see uh, seems to be getting worse and worse, but the fundamental problems uh, that lead to this mass migration, war, instability, corruption, hopelessness, unfortunately, those problems are not being addressed. That's exactly Poppy. right. So important what is underlying all of this and causing them to flee. Ben Wiedemann, appreciate the reporting from Rome. In the wake of their father's high-profile arrest, the children of the suspect in the Gilgo Beach murders are trying to regain their sense of normalcy. The case throws Rex Huerman's two adult children into, quote, hellscape, according to their attorney, Vess Metev. Uh, Vess, thank you for being with us. Um, a 26-year-old daughter, 33-year-old son who has special needs. And the evidence, according to uh, investigators, shows that these first three women were killed when uh, the family, the wife and, and your two clients were out of town. Now a hellscape after the arrest. What have they been going through? What are they feeling? 
Well, good morning, and thanks for having me. They're obviously living in a waking nightmare. Uh, it's not one of their own making. Uh, every day, every moment, the earth is uh, literally shifting beneath their feet. As more and more details come out in the investigation, obviously the shock and grief that they've experienced is not something you would wish upon anyone. Uh, I don't think I can imagine it. I don't think you can imagine it. But uh, they're trying to realign their reality with what's going on minute by minute. And it's not easy. It's not an easy road. And and that's it's not an easy road ahead as well. They have uh, a long ways to go to try to piece back any sense of normalcy, which at this point is nearly impossible. Yeah, of course, of course. What they're enduring is almost un unimaginable. Um, can you tell us what you are able to share about their involvement in this investigation? Are they cooperating with authorities, sitting down, speaking with them, sharing DNA samples with them? Well, we don't know what the investigation is going to go, where it's going to go next. And that's that's the problem with criminal investigations. You don't know where they go until they get there. And of course, they have civil rights and liberties that needed to be protected. Uh, all of us have civil rights and liberties under the Constitution, under the state of New York laws. And of course, uh, their civil liberties at some point may become intertwined with the district attorney's investigation, which, as we have all learned in the last few days, is is massive. There's troves of data being turned over. So again, needing to protect that and needing to protect their involvement in their place in what could be potentially, uh, you know, an investigation or they could be potentially, uh, you know, they're, again, they have rights and liberties that so what, needed to be protected uh, what, as this investigation develops further. What I'm hearing you say as their attorney then is that they have not talked to the authorities yet, have not provided DNA yet. Is that right? We've not been contacted by any, any investigators at this point. Okay. And of course, when and if they do, they would have to contact us and, and go through us. Okay. Okay. Of course. Speaking of DNA, uh, we know that prosecutors have asked uh, Rex Huberman to uh, provide DNA. Do you know if he is cooperating? We have no information. Obviously, we don't represent Mr. Hewerman. He has very capable uh, defense attorney sure. counsel. So at that, you know, that's something that, that we can't really comment on. Mm. What are your primary concerns for your clients moving forward? Sure. Well, I mean, in the immediate uh, moments, obviously, it's, it's their basic needs, their food, their water, their clothing, their shelter. Again, the house was completely destroyed from the floorboards to the rafters. Uh, you know, they, have, they lack the basic necessities. So uh, we're working together, obviously, with the help of the public and the outpouring of support that they've gotten to try to piece back, uh, you know, again, the very, very basic building blocks of any human existence. And that's what they need right now. And of course, uh, you know, to try to establish some sense of normalcy uh, away from the harsh glare of the spotlight, which it's not something that they ask for and they find themselves immediately under this microscope. So. Vas Mitev, thank you for, for coming on. And please, you're welcome back as you have more information. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, the rapper who shot hip-hop star Megan Thee Stallion now faces 10 years behind bars. How she is responding to the sentencing. Also $1.58 billion. <laughs> That's how big last night's Mega Millions jackpot was. We'll tell you where the winning ticket was sold. All right, as you're getting your day started, here are five things you need to know. Ohio voters overwhelmingly rejected a Republican effort that would have made it harder to amend the state's constitution. 
It's a major win for abortion rights activists ahead of a November vote on enshrining reproductive rights in the Ohio Constitution. Just look at this video from Hawaii. Winds associated with Hurricane Dora are fueling wildfires, prompting evacuations on both Maui and the Big Island last hour. The lieutenant governor told us the situation was dire, with hospitals being overwhelmed with burn victims and patients suffering from smoke inhalation. Repertory Lane sentenced to 10 years in prison for shooting Megan Thee Stallion in the foot three years ago. Lane's pleaded not guilty, but was convicted on all three gun charges. In a statement, Megan said she was thinking about other victims of violence who could not speak out. A murder investigation is underway in Australia after three people died after eating a meal that may have included poisonous death cat mushrooms. Officials say Erin Patterson served lunch to her former parents-in-law and her mother-in-law, Law's sister and husband. Less than a week later, three of four were dead, one in critical condition. Check on your people in Florida. <laughs> one person just became a billionaire overnight. That winning ticket was sold in the Mega Millions Lottery in Neptune Beach, Florida. $1.58 billion jackpot to one person, the biggest in the game's history. <laughs> that is five things to know this morning. Hope maybe one of you is a billionaire. More on these stories all day on CNN and CNN.com. I should have played. Don't forget to download the Five Things podcast every morning. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. We're glad you're with us today. A lot of news today. Stay with us for CNN News Central right after this break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.